Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Welcome back to the Thought Adventure podcast. And today we have a special episode. This is episode number five here on the podcast. Uh, today we're going to be discussing if consciousness is a miracle. Now it's a little bit tongue in cheek, um, but the main thrust of what we're going to be talking about is whether or not consciousness can be grounded on materialism. And so we're going to intro the topic, give our thoughts on answering that question, um, and then we will eventually make it to the audience to where you guys can call in and give us your thoughts and comments on it. Uh, we especially would like to hear from atheists or materialists um, because we want to hear what you guys have to say about this. This is mainly going to be <laughs> addressing the naturalists here in the audience. Um, but I do want to point out that we've got a special guest on our panel today, is Brother Hamza. Uh, he's nice enough to bless us with his presence and join us. Um, he's got a little bit of an expertise on the matter because he's done his master's on consciousness. So we do want to hear his thoughts. And uh, Brother Hamza, if you want to start off by just addressing the audience, maybe uh, most people here, I'm sure, already know who you are. But if you want to just explain a little bit of your background, um, in the field because you've done a master's on it and then answer the question as to whether or not you think um, consciousness can actually be grounded on materialism or not. Okay, good. Thanks for the introduction, Jake. May Allah bless you all. Just me for the opportunity. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Well, my name is Hamza and uh, I wrote a book called The Divine Reality and I did an MA in philosophy my dissertation was on the hard problem of consciousness and other bits and pieces. And I'm continuing my postgraduate research at the University of London. And I have a particular interest in consciousness because I had a bit of an issue when I was, I was around, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12 years old. I had this kind of existential crisis, not from the point of view of meaning or the point of view of, um, you know, purpose in life. It was more on it was more a form of solipsism which was mm. i had a realization it just dawned on me that i was the only one aware of my own conscious awareness and i wasn't aware of other people's conscious awareness at the same time that i'm aware of my own awareness <laughs> that might be a bit confusing but that was extremely lonely it, was, it just dawned on me it was such a lonely thing that I, I think I started crying. I would, I would get slightly, you know, contextually depressed because I felt like I was maybe the only one who really exists, right? Now, people may not empathize with this at all because they haven't had this experience. Alhamdulillah, yeah, yeah. thank God. But some people just have those experiences. And I think that was a kind of emotional, existential driver in order for me to try and explore the whole topic of consciousness a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was very fascinated with the hard problem of consciousness. Now, as many of you may know or not know, the hard problem of consciousness in the philosophy of the mind is really based on two key questions. People think it's only one question, but in actual fact, it's two key questions. The first key question is, what is it like for a particular organism to have a inner subjective conscious experience, okay? So I know I have inner subjective conscious experiences, and I know what it's like for me to have a hot chocolate on a Sunday looking at the sunset. But what about Jake's inner subjective conscious experience? Can I know what it's like for Jake 
to have a hot chocolate on a Sunday looking at the sunset? No, I just have my own. Now, it's subjectivity for sure. However, it is a first-person fact. No one can deny the fact that they have an awareness of their own awareness or they are undergoing or they're experiencing a, a form of phenomenal consciousness. Because in the literature, it's also called, uh, known as phenomenality or phenomenal experience, which basically means in a subjective conscious experience. So I may be able to, to describe my experience as warm, sweet, beautiful, and you may use exactly the same words. And we're thinking we're talking about the same type of inner subjective conscious experience, but in actual fact, we still wouldn't know. Why? Because words are vehicles to meaning and meaning is like a reflection, a mirror of the inner subjective conscious experience. So when I say warm and beautiful and amazing, I have a certain kind of experience that backs that up, that's personal to me, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Jake has exactly the same type of experience, even though he's using the same words. Right. So this is what you may call the epistemic gap. There's an epistemological gap, meaning there is a gap of knowledge. How do we bridge that gap under materialism? And by the way, when we use the word materialism in the philosophy of the mind, it's used synonymously with physicalism. Yes, they have two different histories, However, they really mean the following, that consciousness can be reduced to or is identical to physical processes. Materialism historically used to talk about, uh, sorry, materialism historically used to talk about bits of matter, but in the mm -hmm. philosophy of the mind, in the literature, as far as I'm, I, I'm aware of it, that those two terms are used synonymously and they're used in the context that we've just said, that all consciousness can be reduced to in some way or identical to physical processes. So that's the first question of the hard problem. The second question is not an epistemological question. It's not an epistemic question because people, a lot of the naturalists, they say, oh, you know, we're going to bridge the gap, right? We're going to bridge that gap. When we know the science, when we learn more science, we'll bridge it, which I think is a huge fallacious argument we could discuss later and unpack it later. But the point here is, they say we could bridge that gap, but they've misunderstood the hard problem because the hard problem is not just an epistemic issue, it's an ontological issue, meaning the source and nature of reality. So the second question is, why and how do phenomenal experiences, meaning how and why do inner subjective conscious experiences arise from neurobiological processes? Mm. This is has some epistemic issues, but it's also an ontological issue, given the fact that we have a kind of first-person fact sensation of what it's like to have inner subjective conscious experiences. And we know what kind of physical processes are supposed to be. Because even according to the naturalist, physical processes are what? They're blind and non-conscious. What does that mean? Let's unpack that. When we say physical processes are blind, it means there is no intentional force directing them anywhere. When we say they're non-conscious, we're saying physical processes do not have something called intentionality. Now, I know that's a mm -hmm. massive issue in the philosophy of the mind. There's lots of ikhtilaf, as they say, differences of opinion. But just to break it down in, in a simple way, intentionality is about aboutness. Yeah. For example, I'm looking at my mobile phone. My, my stream of consciousness now is about something other than what's in here. It's outside. It's about something else. Physical mm -hmm. processes by definition, are not about anything. They're not even about their own selves. They just are cold and non-conscious from that perspective. 
So one would argue, if that's the ontology of physicalism, which also relates to philosophical naturalism, then how can we have inner subjective conscious experiences arise from seemingly cold and non-conscious physical processes? It's like, whoa, right? So how do they try and answer these questions? So let me go backwards. The first way they're trying to answer this question, especially from the kind of atheistic perspective, is science, neuroscience, neurobiological studies is going to solve the problem. Now, with all due respect, right? With all due respect, neuroscience is predicated on a philosophical assumption. This is yeah. well known. If you read the works of um, Rex Wilson, Anti Revoncio, <laughs> Manzotti, Moderato, blah, 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 blah. The philosophers of the mind and even neuroscientists themselves understand that neurobiological studies, neuroscience, it assumes physicalism. Mm. So all neurobiological studies can do is basically give you a physicalistic approach or, or a materialistic approach to this question. And by definition, it won't really solve the problem because it will be always assuming physicalism to be true. What we're trying to show now is, well, is physicalism true? Is materialism or physicalism the correct philosophy of the mind to understand the reality of consciousness, right? They can't even start dealing with that question because all neurobiological studies are basically uh, predicated on this philosophical assumption, which is physicalism. So mm. neuroscience will never be able to address this issue because neuroscience, generally speaking, is a study of correlations. As one of my friends who's a, who did a master's in neuroscience, he called it pixelated phrenology. Yeah, the <laughs> phrenology is a study of the brain. It's pixelated phrenology. And, and listen to this. This is my challenge. Even if we're to map out the entirety of Jake's brain, right? Mm -hmm. Say we map it out and we can correlate every single pattern and the minutiae, the differences, and correlate them to inner subjective conscious experiences and correlate those to his utterances of the descriptions of his inner experiences, it still would not, it still won't solve the problem. It will still won't answer <laughs> both questions. He won't answer, okay, well, what is it like for Jake to undergo a particular inner subjective conscious experience? We just have his, uh, we just have his descriptions, right? Right. But what is it like? And we won't be able to answer the question, well, how on earth does he have this inner subjective conscious experience arising, arising from seemingly cold, blind physical processes? So even if neuroscience were to map everything in the brain, because this is one of the arguments from the atheist, look, man, when we know everything about the brain, we'll know everything about consciousness. Whoa, whoa, right. whoa, whoa. That would only make sense if you're an eliminative materialist, right? But we could discuss yeah. that a bit later. So neuroscience can't really deal with the problem. And I've got something here from Professor, I forgot his name now. He's from King's College University in London. He mm -hmm. actually articulated a really powerful undercutting defeater to people who claim that neuroscience is actually, if we know more about the brain, we'll know more about consciousness from the point of view of inner subjective conscious experiences. So... Mm -hmm. He makes a, a really beautiful point. Yeah, it's, it's Papineau, the Professor Papineau. Yeah. He, I think his name is David Papineau. He presents mm -hmm. a, a really nice argument. I want to summarize the argument for you. It's a seven statements. So mm -hmm. he says, number one, and I'm paraphrasing, a neurochemical event E is identical with the conscious experience P. Number two, E 
cannot be absent when P is testified to be present. Three, E cannot be present when P is testified to be absent. Four, E must be present to be necessary for P. Five, E is sometimes absent when P is testified to be present. Six, E is sometimes present when P is testified to be absent. Seven, conclusion, therefore E is not necessary for P. So his conclusion is that the neurochemical event E is not necessary for inner subjective conscious experience P. Because when you do a study of all the neurobiological correlations, you will see that sometimes the neurobiological event E is not always present for a particular P. And sometimes it's absent, sometimes it's present, and so on and so forth. So it shows that the correlations they have found so far are not necessary for P, which is a really interesting argument by Papineau. Now, I've gone too long. I don't want to take too much time. So I just want to mention what are the physicalist claims? So I'm not going to go into them and refute them. I think we should do that together. Mm -hmm. Right. So one approach is what you would call eliminative materialism. Okay. And one would argue that the church lens had this view. Dennett had this view in 1991. He wrote the book, Consciousness Explained. Some philosophers said that book should have been called Consciousness Explained Away. <laughs> he, he doesn't deal with the, the questions of the hard problem of consciousness. He just he just thinks that we're just like, you know, uh, robots. We don't have any consciousness, right? Yeah. So it's eliminative materialism, which basically says that there is no consciousness. That's essentially what they're saying. And mm. we could unpack what it means and unpack and how we can address that during the podcast today. Mm -hmm. And by the way, a lot of the empirical neurobiological studies that have fancy names, right? There are so many fancy names for many different, you know, uh, neuro the the neuro correlations and all of that fancy names right all of these things still have these um approaches as their philosophical assumptions so it's very important to deal with the philosophical assumptions because the kind of minutiae of the empirical neurobiological study is interesting but it's really predicated on these approaches anyway so one is eliminative materialism the other one is re reductive materialism which mm -hmm. basically says it doesn't deny inner subjective conscious experience but it says that that the brain or our understanding or science or understanding of the brain would eventually close the gap and we'll be able to understand that 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 the, that consciousness can be explained or reduced due to physical processes in some way so they don't mm -hmm. say individual process or individual bits of matter they will say you know you can reduce it to physical processes in some way then we could discuss why that's that fails Right. The, other the other physicalist approach, which is very popular, is called functionalism. Mm. Functionalism, just to really make you understand this, is like a mirroring a computer system. You have inputs, mental states and outputs. And, you know, they say when you have an input, for example, your, 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 your bus is coming, right? Mm -hmm. um, and your mental state is, oh my God, I'm going to be late, right? You have the inner subject and experience, so I'm, I'm actually late. And then the output is that you start running for your bus. So there is a connection between inputs, outputs, and mental states. But as you know, that doesn't even answer any of the problems of the hard the problems of consciousness. But we could address that later. Another view, well, probably the final physicalist view, main physicalist view, is what you call emergent materialism, which is getting quite popular. Mm. And there are two forms of emergent materialism. You have strong emergent materialism and weak emergent materialism. Strong emergent materialism says, look, consciousness exists, but it's based on complex physical processes. And these physical processes have complex causal relations. 
and it's impossible to impossible to unravel them. And they said to try and understand it, it's equivalent of putting, for example, Darwin's book on the origin of species in a hamster's cage, thinking the hamster's going to understand its origins, right? It's a good, it's an interesting point, but it's, it's a failed point because all they're doing, they're really assuming some type of physicalism like reductive materialism anyway, or reductive, uh, or yeah, reductive materialism. And it's a bit of a cop-out, and we could, we could discuss later why that's the case. The other version, which is called weak emergent materialism, which basically says, yes, it's based on complex physical processes, and these physical processes have complex causal relations. When we unravel them, we will be able to understand subjective consciousness. But really, that's not a philosophy in itself. That's reductive materialism. You're assuming reductive materialism to be true, and if you've dealt with reductive materialism, then you've dealt with... Uh, weak emergence and they give you things like you know what about water you know you have the the molecules of oxygen and 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 hydrogen and they combine together to give you properties that don't exist in in the original individual processes that's what emergent materialism basically says that you're going to get something an emergent property like consciousness and the properties of consciousness cannot be found in the individual processes or in the physical system that is causally related and causally connected and they say look this exists in science anyway look at look at water h2o you have hydrogen you have uh, oxygen and you put them together and they causally relate in some way and you have properties of water that don't belong to the individual uh, mole uh, uh, molecules for example the individual atoms uh, hydrogen atoms oxygen atoms right so you have water that is shiny and it's a transparent liquid, but those properties cannot be found in the individual processes themselves, which we know that example is a really bad example for many reasons, which we could discuss. So those are the main type of physicalist ontologies, if you like, or the physicalist, uh, physicalist approaches to the mind. Um, and I would argue from this, we could even talk about God's existence from the hard problem of consciousness, but that's yeah. maybe for another day. Uh, right. Sorry for waffling. But that's the introduction. Oh, no, that was great. No, 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 no. It was a great introduction. Really do appreciate it. So as far as what I understood you saying, Brother Hamza, is that there, there's two main problems uh, with consciousness and materialism. Uh, one is an ontological problem and one is an epistemological problem. And then you went over various different um, possible responses that are offered in the literature uh, in philosophy of mind from a materialist or physicalist paradigm and then you explain some of the some of the issues or potential issues with each one of those um responses to the uh to the two problems that you mentioned so i think that was a great intro to explaining sort of the foundations for the discussion um i do want to point out to the audience that um we are going to spend a little bit more time on the introduction portion of this because it is a bit more in depth than kind of uh, gets in the weeds a little bit philosophically. So we want to uh, lay the groundwork for the discussion before we invite guests on. And we're probably going to shoot for maybe around 45 minutes to an hour to when we start to invite guests on. Um, but yeah, once again, Hamza, I do appreciate that intro. Now, Brother Sharif, I, I want to hear what your thoughts are on the question. Can materialism actually account for or ground consciousness? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, so I think Brother Hams has mentioned a lot of points and really covered the subject area comprehensively. Uh, it seems on this. Uh, how I uh, how I also see it is um, 
when we look at the issue of consciousness, what we're asking is, how is it that non-physical things become self-aware, become, have this internal experience? How do non-physical, sorry, physical, non-conscious things have this internal experience? That's the first question we're trying to work out. The second question is, okay, how do we approach that? How can we analyze the internal experiences of something that's physical? You know, what, what do we do? So normally the scientists will say, well, we'll use science to try to investigate that. And I think as Hamza's mentioned, uh, and also his object, is that there is a problem. There's like an in-principle problem. The in-principle problem is this. Let me give an example. If I've got a color red, yeah, uh, I've, I thought this bottle was red, but it's actually more purple. But if I've got this this purple Ribena, yeah, shouldn't be showing that. We're not sponsored by them. So if we've got this, yeah, which is sort of a purpley color, yeah, we experience it as purple, yeah. Now, yeah. science, what's science going to tell us about this? Science is going to say, well, it has a particular reflection of light at a specific wavelength and a specific energy. It will tell me the properties of the light. None of those properties are related to my experience. Yeah. So there's an experience, there's an attribute that I'm sensing, which is not physical for the light itself. Yeah, it goes beyond the light, in essence, beyond the physical. So what science is going to tell me is going to give me a third person objective analysis of some reality. But consciousness, my experience of this is a first person subjective experience. And there's nothing about the reflection of the wavelength of light and its energy that tells me I will experience it as being uh, purple or red or whatever color. There's another problem. If I have a person who's been blind from birth and I try to describe that color, this color here, there is no language, there's no descriptive way to describe the color to the person who's never seen it, yeah? So we've got another problem in terms of being able to describe something because the language doesn't exist because it is first person experience, which means if you've not experienced it or I've not experienced it, there's no way of being able to describe it because there's nothing in the property that allows us to describe describe it as the experience that we're having. And that's not just like color, that's everything else as well. Taste, pain, you know, as Hamza mentioned, you know, see, you know, having a coffee on a sunset after Maghrib maybe with Salah and stuff like that. So, you know, <laughs> this, this is, uh, so these things we don't any experience, it's these things we can't describe because the quality is not in the object, yeah? It's within our own mind. So the question then becomes, well, how do I access the mind? Now, some people say, well, as Hamza mentioned about this correlation about how the brain states tells us, you know, if we work out the brain states, we can work out the correlation, yeah? And this is very, the analogy that, you know, strikes home to me is if I had ones and zeros, which are binary code for computer programs, yeah? Now there's nothing in the ones and zeros that tells me what the computer program is. You need something that occurs before the computer program, and that's the mind. That's the conscious ability to interpret the ones and zeros. It's like Morse code, dashes and dots. The dashes and dots are not gonna give me information What's going to give me information is the fact that I can interpret the dashes and dots 
into a language that I can understand. So I need a mind before the signals, whether that signals in the brain, you know, the action potentials and the neurons, or whether that is the ones and zeros on a computer. I need something that has the has already existed separate from the actual code in order to interpret the code. And the third example, or the third problem is even if people are able to point to and say, okay, this neuron or these group of neurons in the brain, if they fire, they'll make you perceive the color purple, yeah? But the problem is, is that the ability to say, well, okay, the firing, how does that make it purple? It's like, and this is a, an example that Professor Donald Hoffman said, it's like you've got a bottle and you rub the bottle, yeah? You rub the bottle and a genie pops out. Yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> we rub the bottle, yeah, and the genie pops out every time. But you're not going to say that the bottle is causative of the genie. You're going to say, well, this phenomenon is occurring, and I can't necessarily connect the two. Yeah, and that's what's happening when it comes to the hard problem of consciousness. Consciousness is the inability to, you know, have the tools in science to access it. There's nothing within the properties of the reality or the brain that tells us how we're going to experience a reality. And even if we're able to show a correlation between the nerves and the neurons in the brain, we still don't have the ability to explain how this first person subjective experience comes about. Right. So, yeah, that was uh, a little bit more to tack on with this discussion about consciousness. I mean, there's so many different ways um, we can explain it. So I think each one of us giving our own perspective and describing the problem should be really helpful to the audience. But I really appreciate your explanation, uh, Brother Sharif. Um, now, Brother Abdul, what are your thoughts on the question, uh, can consciousness be grounded on materialism? What do you think? Um, well, I think it can't, uh, but... Um... <clears throat> I think this question really is the most essential question when it comes to these um, theist, atheist discussions, because um, I think this is, as Brother Hamza and Brother Sharif mentioned, this is just an in-principle problem for science, which a lot of atheists do rely on to account for their naturalism, right? And um, like when we talk about cosmological arguments, you, you can conceive of, you know, at least a, a naturalist account that at least gives you some sort of a causal chain back to some sort of beginning. And then they just cut the causal chain short at some arbitrary point. We think it's arbitrary, but at least there's a coherent picture there from their point of view. But my view is that on the consciousness discussion, they can't really get off the ground in the first place because it's about a state of self-awareness that's just categorically unlike anything else in the natural world. And... And it is the starting point of our interaction with the world, right? And so, I mean, we start from this sort of like epistemic dualism that we already have our experiences of things and what the things themselves are, right? So it, it's, uh, for me, this poses an in-principle problem for science. And if we're going to define naturalism as, you know, if, if naturalism is committed to the idea that everything in reality is explicable through uh, uh, natural means or you know if they're committed to the causal closure of the physical or if they say that everything is reducible to the physics and the chemistry that we see in the world then this is the in principle problem that 
they face because you have this sort of qualitative leap when it comes to uh, consciousness that you don't find in anything else really in the observable world. So like Brother Hamza mentioned, the wetness and, and these other like, let's say, emergent properties that you can think of um, <clears throat> that can be a result of physical interactions. At the end of the day, you're not going to have that qualitative leap. They're, they are going to be explainable in physical terms. And, you know, we wouldn't disagree that a lot of those properties and a lot of those things are reducible to the physical. But when it comes to consciousness, and a lot of uh, materialist philosophers like John Searle agree that it is really irreducible to the physical because you can't reduce your experience of the physical to the physical. You actually couldn't possibly do that and the in principle problem comes for many reasons it's because first of all you can't put consciousness under a microscope i can put your brain under a microscope but i can't put your experience under a microscope so and science relies on third person perspectives in the first place right so consciousness is a first person perspective thing so you have an in principle problem and when you do have an in principle problem we're not saying that you know you know, this is a problem because of a lack of information that future science can solve. No, we're saying that you couldn't possibly sol solve it without some kind of radical paradigm shift that would kind of change the meaning of science as naturalists understand it right now, and maybe would be able to encompass some kind of supernaturalism, right? But science as it is right now, and naturalism as it describes the world in physical and chemical terms, and as they attempt to reduce everything to the material, couldn't possibly account for something that is so qualitatively unlike everything else in the physical world. And I think the bigger problem actually for me comes with uh, when we talk about grounding rationality, right? And, and arguments from reason. And uh, I know we put that in the poster, it is related, but I think that's really the bigger problem for naturalism in the sense that it makes it really self-defeating if all your beliefs <clears throat> couldn't possibly be explained in non-rational terms or couldn't be reduced to it, then your belief in naturalism is self-defeating. So generally speaking, I think this is really the biggest problem for, for naturalism in general. And I think it's uh, a more powerful of an argument, whether we're talking about consciousness or reason, than any argument uh, against naturalism we could come up with. I mean, I would agree with you. I think it's a it's a huge problem um, for naturalism, and the way that I see it is that uh, when we talk about consciousness, generally speaking, there's five states of consciousness. So there's things like sensations, thoughts, beliefs, desires, and acts of will. None of which I think can reasonably be grounded on a materialist paradigm whatsoever. I mean, you guys have kind of gone into a lot of detail about that. Um, but Thomas Nagel, who's a, a, an atheist philosopher, he's famous. He has this paper on what it's like to be a bat. And he explains that it's a sort of in-principle problem that science and we could really never understand what it's like to be a bat. Because in order to do so, you would need to be a bat. And we just don't even have the language to explain that. As you guys were talking about, science deals with what's called the third-person perspective. And it only has uh, language that can describe the phenomenon uh, via this third person perspective, not by the first person perspective, which consciousness is. So it's an in principle problem that science can't really deal with the subject in a meaningful way to uh, explain it whatsoever. Um, 
And there's one thing that Brother Hamza mentioned, which is something that I like to focus on. It's something that I'm personally really interested in. And it's what you talked about intentionality. And it's a bit difficult to understand. So I'm going to do the best that I can to explain it. But if you do the research on it, there's a well-known problem called the problem of intentionality. And basically the problem is uh, from a physicalist stand, uh, standpoint, how you can explain how the neurons in our brain would be intrinsically about things outside of our brain. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to show you guys an example. I don't know if you can see it, but there's a book here by Alex Rosenberg, an atheist guide to reality, which he describes this issue. He's got a diagram here and he says, how can you understand how the top picture, which is the neurons in the brain can be intrinsically about the bottom picture, which is Paris. And so he, he talks about the issue of, uh, the Paris neurons, um, and the, basically the neurons that are responsible, um, these neurons that are responsible uh, for your thoughts about this physical object, which is Paris. Now, the question is, how on a phys physicalist paradigm do these thoughts in your brain, these neurons, how could they intrinsically be about Paris? It just doesn't, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, it's so mysterious. And when you start to think about it more and more, um, you get to a point which he talks about in the book that he, he makes the argument that on materialism, you can't actually think about anything whatsoever. And it, it, it devolves into sort of this, um, you know, very strange uh, picture. I'll just read one paragraph from this book. Um, it's on uh, page 179, and, and the title of the chapter is The Brain uh, Does Everything Without Thinking About Anything at All. And he says this to explain the problem that I'm talking about. He says, physics has ruled out the existence of clumps of matter of the required sort, meaning the, the clumps of matter that are um, used to talk about intentionality the function of the brain in this case, which we would disagree with. But he's saying physics has ruled out the existence of clumps of matter of the required sort. There are just fermions and bosons and combinations of them. None of that stuff is just all by itself about any other stuff. There is nothing in the whole universe, including, of course, all the neurons in your brain, that just by its nature or composition can do this job of being about some other clump of matter. So when consciousness, and listen to this, so when consciousness assures us that we have thoughts about stuff, it has to be wrong. The brain non-consciously stores information and thoughts, but the thoughts are not about stuff. Therefore, consciousness cannot retrieve thoughts about stuff. There are none to retrieve, so it can't have thoughts about stuff either. And so what he's explaining to you is that on a physicalist paradigm and based on physics, you have to come to the absurd conclusion that you can't actually think about anything. But the very thought about not being able to think about anything is a thought about something itself. So the view become, devolves into this sort of self-refuting understanding. And so I'm just pointing out um, this one aspect that I think that I actually think Rosenberg's conclusion is correct, 
that he's trying to give an, what he calls the atheist guide to reality, that if you are a physicalist, it results in the absurd position that you can't actually think about anything, which is ridiculous because uh, most assuredly the, the words in his book have to be about something. Otherwise, what is he telling us? He's just wasting our time putting ink on paper, right? <laughs> so, um, and then I, I do want to touch on an issue that results in this, which is what I think is the problem that you can't actually ground knowledge on uh, materialism whatsoever based on this account of what we're talking about with intentionality. And I'm just going to give a very brief argument for this is that knowledge is typically understood as justified true belief. Now, this means that knowledge assumes truth because in order for it to account for knowledge, it has to be true. Now, truth in the literature, uh, for the most part, is understood as that which corresponds to reality. Now, this notion of corresponding to reality or matching up, meaning that the things in your brain match up to something real outside of it, assumes the function of consciousness intentionality, which is the thing that I was describing. Now, if the materialist cannot actually ground intentionality on their own paradigm, then that means they wouldn't be able to ground truth because truth assumes this sort of corresponding or matching up. Now, if it cannot ground truth, it cannot ground knowledge because knowledge assumes truth. So it's this domino effect in which if you cannot ground intentionality on a materialist paradigm, you cannot ground truth. And if you cannot ground truth, you cannot ground knowledge. And then therefore, atheists or materialists cannot actually ground knowledge on their paradigm whatsoever. Now, I know this is a little bit of a shift from consciousness, but I do want to point out because th people may thinking, well, this is kind of an abstract concept. You guys are going into so much detail about consciousness. Is it really that important? And I'm saying, yes, it has massive in implications for our ability to even ground the concept of knowledge or something like it. And so I do want to point that out. Um, but yeah, so, you know, in summary, I think we've done a, a great job of sort of explaining what the hard problem of consciousness is, the different facets related to it, um, some of the potential responses from a materialist that they could possibly make, what the problems with that are, and the implications of this in general that we cannot ground things like intentionality, which results in not even being able to ground things like knowledge. Um, so yeah, I do want to open it up back to you guys. We're at about the 40 minute mark. I don't know if there's anything else, any of, uh, the panels here. I just, uh, I just want to say something about the hard problem in, in particular. It's not really a hard problem unless you're a materialist and you can really see the significance of this question. I think over the past hundred or 200 years, the, the philosophy of mind in general in, 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 in Western, you know, contemporary philosophy, I think the whole domain of the philosophy of mind has been just an attempt to get as far away from dualism as they possibly can. And it was just a bunch of um, basically bandwagoning on these physicalist theories of mind very mindlessly to the extent that they adopted some very radical and, I mean, how to put it nicely, 
like ridiculous ideas like behaviorism, um, eliminative materialism is probably the worst, but I think identity theory is up there as well. I mean, your mental states are identical to your brain states. I think that's just as ridiculous as eliminative materialism. And right now they've, they shifted to things like what Brother Hamza mentioned with functionalism, which doesn't really deal with the problem. I mean, I can be a dualist and accept what you're telling me about functionalism. So it doesn't really deal with the problem of qualia. So I think, yes, it is a problem. And, and you can really see that from their very desperate attempt to get away from dualism. We, we, we're not saying it's, it's a problem in general. We're saying it's a problem for materialism. And because they have so radically you know, uh, invested themselves in this materialist worldview in general uh, in the Western world over the past uh, couple of centuries, all of their attempts uh, in explaining, at explaining consciousness have been uh, basically attempts at getting away from any notion of, of dualism. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just to add to that, to be a little bit more maybe reflective of what's going on in academia, there are a bunch of atheists that are not physicalists, believe it or not, right? So I try to mention this when I define atheism sometimes when we deliver courses that, yes, most atheists, practically speaking, are philosophical naturalists, but it's not the case that all of them are. So, yes, to be an atheist, you know, uh, so to be a philosophical naturalist, you have to be an atheist. But to be an atheist, it doesn't doesn't necessarily necessarily entail that you're going to be a a a philosophical naturalist so for example you have professor david Chalmers who adopts what you call the spooky thing called panpsychism i don't know if you've read about panpsychism yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Like, well, <laughs> I, I think some of these things are just god replacements man i'm telling yep, you yeah. you know yeah. the multiverse panpsychism all of this stuff these are just like you know almost conceptual replacements for god really bad versions of them right anyway so i just want to just mention that because uh, Hamza, like, could you explain what panpsychism is, just in case? Well, audience yeah, well, I, I think I, I think panpsychists have a problem in explaining what it is as well. But basically, panpsychists <laughs> are panpsychists are basically saying, in a really brief nutshell, that you have physical properties in the universe, right, and you also have conscious properties in the universe, right. So some would argue there's a form of proto consciousness in an electron. So an electron maybe can have a proto-consciousness of having an existential crisis. Why am I here? Yeah. Why am I ripping around? <laughs> and I know that's a crude representation of it, but basically what they're saying is in the, the physical universe, it's not just physical properties. You also have uh, conscious properties, a form of proto-consciousness. The problem with panpsychism, and there are many problems and they try to address them, is the problem of having a unified conscious experience. So if, for example... In the, in the fundamental building blocks of the physical world, call them electrons or whatever you want to call them, if there's a form of proto-consciousness in them, then if they amalgamate together to form a human being, for example, how can you explain a unified conscious experience from that perspective? So panpsychism uh, is, is, you know, some people just laugh at it, but it's actually gaining, I think, a little bit more traction. But the interesting thing that Brother Sharif mentioned, which I, I felt that he summarized everything beautifully, and he summarized the hard problem of consciousness really well. It really echoes, I don't know if you've heard of Frank Jackson's Mary's example, Mary Thought Experiment. So the Mary Thought Experiment is basically that she knows all the kind of science, if you like, and all the, everything about color, everything about the visual processes from a kind of 
physical fact point of view. She knows all the physical facts about seeing color. She knows all the physical facts about the visual processes and so on and so forth. But she's been in a black and white, gray room all her life. She's never seen color in her life, yeah? But she is the master of understanding the physics and the biology and the chemistry and the physical processes concerning color and visual experience. Now, one day she's allowed to go out of her room and she sees a red rose for the first time. The question here is, does she learn something new? Does she now know what it's like to observe a red rose? Many people intuitively will say, yeah, it's the first time she's seen a red rose. So she's now learned or she has knowledge or knowledge of an experience of what it's like to see a red rose. So this shows that knowing all the physical facts is not knowing all the facts. And there are facts other than physical facts. Now, obviously, in the literature, there are um, responses to this. One is called the ability hypothesis and so on and so forth, but they're really weak. Um, but I, I, I think what's interesting, maybe to move forward, just as a suggestion, there are physicalist responses to our kind of attack or our understanding of the hard problem of consciousness. For example, eliminative materialism, reductive materialism, which I just summarized. I didn't really discuss why there's problems in these. And maybe we, should, we could allow for our guests who come on board to ask us those questions related to those uh, approaches. Or maybe we should summarize it ourselves. It's up to you. You're the host. But uh, I don't want to preempt anything. But usually, you know, people either talk from the perspective of an eliminative materialist point of view, reductive materialist, uh, and they have their own arguments. Functionalism and measured materialism are some are quite, you know, they think they have a good argument. But really, uh, obviously, they don't. But I don't know yeah. if you want to summarize them and, and respond to them now or just leave that for later. Mm -hmm. uh, about, about about the panpsychism, I just wanted to say really quickly that it's 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 actually uh, gaining so much traction to the extent that some people are actually proposing for that to be <clears throat> the basis for a scientific paradigm shift in order to allow us to account for consciousness. <clears throat> mm. And uh, I think my problem with non-physicalist uh, atheist accounts of consciousness and reality is that they really blurry the lines between naturalism and supernaturalism to yeah. the extent that, as I was saying earlier, if you're going to make that kind of a radical paradigm shift, you can even you know, include supernaturalism within your worldview as well. So we don't really have a meaningful distinction between the two at this point. Absolutely, uh, yeah. and, and it, yeah. makes, it makes theism far more credi credible in the secular academy, right? Yeah, exactly. you, know, the, you know, if you're willing to talk about panpsychism, well, there is another new phenomenon, phenomenon which you don't really find it in the online world, but it's in academia. It's called the phenomenal concept strategy. So Brian Law, he developed this thing called phenomenal concept strategy, and it's been developed by others now. But basically what the idea is that you have one property, which is a physical property in the universe. So it's, so it's a physicalist ontology. But they say you have two types of consciousness. Yeah, so two types of concepts. So one concept is what you call a physical functional concept. And another concept is a inner subjective conscious experience concept. It's a phenomenal concept. Mm -hmm. So they say that when you uh, observe a physical reality, you uh, the, the, the mind what emerges from it is a physical concept and a phenomenal concept. So they're trying in so many different ways to try and understand all of these, or trying to respond to all of these uh, uh, points of view. Um, 
And uh, obviously, they have their own problems as well. In actual fact, I had to write an essay on Brian Law's phenomenal concept strategy. And uh, it's like, you know, as Jake said in the beginning, I think it was Jake, um, it, it, it's, it's a contradictory paradigm. Consciousness mm. is the final frontier, if you like. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, maybe we could also discuss about artificial intelligence because Professor John Sells got the very famous Chinese room experiment argument, which I think is very yeah. powerful against a strong artificial intelligence. And I don't believe that they share these articles and take them seriously. Like AI yeah. is going to be fully conscious like a human being. Like I'm like, what on earth? Right. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, Brian, uh, uh, Professor um, Sells, Chinese room thought experiment is very powerful as well. Maybe we could get to discuss that later as well, inshallah. And John Searle is a materialist, right? So he, um, he, yeah, he John basically is panpsychist. No, 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 no. Uh, no he's an I think he's emergentist. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he believes it's non it's not reducible. But I don't know how that's materialism. Either, but whatever, we can yeah, get into I, that. Later. Yeah, that's that's the thing yeah. I was gonna actually comment on is because uh, both what Abdul and uh, Brother Hamza were saying is that um, I agree with you that there's accounts from a atheist naturalistic paradigm in which they allow for some of these things like John Searle's emergentism. The problem is that they're starting to muddy the waters. And from what I see in my research in academia is that the naturalists are actually starting to move closer to what we would call supernatural. Things like the con consciousness being immaterial, um, even panpsychism. To me, it just confounds the problem even more because it's saying, well, not only is our brain or human beings conscious but every little tiny molecule is some kind of uh has some level of consciousness in it well it doesn't really to me <laughs> it it just makes it even more difficult to for me from my perspective to fit in a naturalist ontology because once you allow for something like that then your most of your arguments against a, a theism or supernatural supernaturalism seem to fade away because you have a lot a lot of the same things within your ontological scheme and so it, the way i see it is well yeah naturalism is starting to move closer to supernaturalism but it's it's in doing so it's losing ground to criticize the theistic picture and so that that's what the issue is i i think I think it's better to try to push the the naturalist more towards what Rosenberg is saying, and you guys may disagree, but I think it's I think it's to try to show them. Well, no, once you start redefining terms in such a way that you can uh, be a materialist and also be a panpsychist, then what does materialism really mean at that point? Uh, I think we start to lose track of of the distinction between the terminology. Um, so what I try to do normally is I try to push them towards, well, no, this is, you know, a hard physicalist picture is really what the true understanding of naturalism would be. Otherwise, okay, you can move closer towards me, but then don't try to criticize me on, on, on my picture of God or um, angels or things like that, because yeah. you guys are allowing for this, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know if you're, 
is, is, I don't know is, if you remember it, Jake, but I think yeah. you were on the call and we were having a discussion with an atheist friend of ours. I think he was an ex-Muslim who who was like a proponent of panpsychism. And I was talking to him and he accepted like yeah. cosmological arguments. Generally, he accepted that there is a necessary foundation for reality. And then I think he sort of forgot that he was a panpsychist. I'm like, so you believe that there is some kind of a conscious cause or a conscious necessary foundation. And he was like, uh, he really hesitated. I'm like, even if you say it's some kind of a proto-consciousness, we're really blurring the lines here between yeah. what it is to be a naturalist and a supernaturalist. Because right now you believe in a conscious uh, uh, foundation for reality. So do I. Now let's talk about what the nature of that, What which, which theory better explains the data mm -hmm. uh, since we have this huge common ground, right? So um, I, I do think, the reason I think uh, philosophers like uh, Graham Oppie are, are um, very good at building this common ground is because he's very straightforward in his definitions of what it means to be a naturalist and a supernaturalist. When he, sa when he says he believes in a natural initial item, as he puts it, that created the universe or that <laughs> caused the universe, he explicitly says that it's a non-conscious initial item. So I can work with that, right? I, but then when you say, you know, it can be anything and you just slap the label natural on it, I'm just not, not sure how, how, how that can be philosophically useful for a discussion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, fair, in fairness to them, if they adopt panpsychism, they've already moved away from materialism anyway. Because yeah, panpsychism yeah. is, is not considered a physicalist uh, uh, conception of the philosophy of, of the mind. So right. they've already right. moved way away from materialism to the panpsychist, that's for sure. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, the issue with that, like I said, is that um, one of the things that I'm noticing is that you have people like Chalmers moving towards panpsychism. And what I see from the theistic paradigm is even with the, all the new scientific evidence, even the philosophical discussions, our view for the most part has stood the test of time. All of these things like consciousness and what we're talking about now fit very nicely and neatly within a theistic ontology, whereas they don't for naturalism and naturalism is the thing that is having to make room for it, where all along we're just saying, well, yeah, guys, this is what we've been saying for thousands of years, pretty much. So I, I see that as a, a genuine thing that people should be paying close, close attention, attention to in the sense that naturalism seems to be moving a bit more towards the supernatural and not having as clear of a hard line in between those two things, whereas we are perfectly fine with it and it fits very nicely in our ontological uh, structure. So yeah, I, I want to ask Brother Hamza a qu quick question, maybe sure. before we bring guests on, because um, I mean, generally, uh, when we talk about consciousness or arguments from reason, they're they're generally arguments against naturalism, uh, and not necessarily a direct. You know, we can't we, we don't have an, a direct route to God necessarily. It's not like a direct inference. I don't know if you disagree with that, but um, how would you turn this discussion about consciousness to a, a you know, an inference to the, the to theism, basically. Yeah. Well, I think for me, what I would do is, it depends what kind of conception of non-physicalistic conception of the mind you adopt. So if you adopt a dualistic, integrated type of dualism, so an integrated type of dualism, which basically says that your ontology is that there are physical properties and non-physical properties, but at the same time, uh, we can still engage with the project of neuroscience, neuroscience in order to understand, you know, how the brain works and so on and so forth. 
but with that kind of metaphysical backdrop that there are uh, physical and non-physical uh, properties and all of that makes sense together. So, you know, can, can you be, can you adopt a kind of integrated type of dualism uh, like Professor Talia Pharaoh and others? Yes, you can. Can that be a good argument for God's existence? Well, from a metaphysical point of view, one would say, well, you know, in meta, what is metaphysics really? It's like your first principles. It's like your kind of um, first principle framework, if you like, your lenses in order to understand reality. It, it coheres well with understanding yourself, reality, and how you relate to reality. So one would argue, does integrated dualism make sense under theism? And then you'd have to make an inference between the two and make a connection between the two. And you'd have to show how it's some kind of metaphysically necessary, and I don't mean that in a kind of philosophical sense necessary, yeah? Mm-hmm. How it, it's uh, metaphysically necessary uh, to, 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 bring in the, to bring in theism in order to um, upgrade and enhance your metaphysics and make sense of integrated dualism. That's how you would make the link. You say, fine, mm-hmm. okay, we, we believe in dualism, we believe in non-physical and physical properties and we also believe that you could do the science to understand the physical no problem so neuroscience is not thrown under the uh you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but it has its scope because it only can deal with the physical stuff no problem right what makes sense of that what makes sense of the fact that there are non-physical properties in the universe and physical properties in the universe and we'd be given a mind to do the science in order to understand the physical stuff what makes sense of that then you say well god makes sense of that how and then you start You'd have to talk about, well, who is God and what are the kind of, you know, essential names and attributes of God that would make sense of, of integrated dualism, for example. So you can say that theism, a theistic type of integrated dualism actually makes sense. Uh, but that's how you would have to try and do it. And that would be a starting point. Um, and and would, when we bring rationality into the picture, I think it just makes it much stronger, right? Like, because it's not right now, it's not just self-awareness. You have self, self-awareness, self but also these truth-bearing faculties that we've been given. And if they are reliable, then I think that just makes the case for a rational foundation of reality just much stronger. Well, yes, it depends if – funny enough, I did an essay on this. So Michael Dean, he – he did a response to Plantinga and Stitch on the issue of basically reliable uh, cognitive faculties. So can, does natural selection, can it basically explain the fact that we have um, truth-bearing cognitive faculties, we have, we have reliable cognitive faculties that can produce true beliefs, right? Reliable true beliefs. And obviously, you know Plantinga's argument, you know Stitcher's argument. I think Plantinga goes too far, in my view. He goes way too far. I think there is a middle ground. I think the, the, the thing that we should suggest is that if you're going to adopt uh, f- uh, a, a naturalistic explanation like the Darwinian mechanism to explain your truth-bearing cognitive faculties that could produce um, reliable true beliefs, um, you, they, they have to basically adopt skepticism, which really undermines their claims about religion and their claims about other things right but that's a big topic that is actually yeah. quite a lengthy topic because if um, you think plantinga went too far then i i i'd say you'd probably say the same about c.s lewis because c.s lewis makes basically an incompatibility argument between reason and naturalism that it's not just it's not a probabilistic argument that 
reliable rational faculties would be unlikely under naturalism. He says that they're completely incompatible, as in it's impossible. So would you make that strong claim or, or would you make from a, my, a modern yeah, I, I, From my reading, and it could be totally wrong, I would say that's a bit too far. That's okay. a bit too far. So um, I, both would have to actually provide some evidence for their position. The best thing that you can do, I think, which is safest philosophically, is just to say you can't claim truth. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you have to be a skeptic if you adopt natural selection as your primary mechanism to explain your cognitive faculties, your reliable cognitive faculties that supposedly uh, bring about uh, reliable true beliefs. If you believe natural selection leads to that, well, you have a problem. The safest thing you need to do philosophically is adopt skepticism, yeah? And because you're talking about like a radical kind of skepticism, not a healthy kind of skepticism. Yeah, no, you're talking about like radical. global you skepticism. You can't, you can't make moral claims. You can't make truth claims. You can't even make claims. You should go to sleep. Don't enter the debate. You're not in the forum. You don't even have yeah. the keys to the house <laughs> of reason. You've lost the keys to the house of reason, my friend. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, so I'll show you the essay I did for that. It's, it's quite interesting. It was for university, but yeah, so I think it's a little bit too far. But to be honest, if we bring it up now, so it will just take divert us to a totally different topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, I agree. About other things, which would be uh, uh, quite crazy. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think yeah, I think we're there. I mean, we've explained what the hard problem of consciousness is, two main problems. What is it like for uh, a particular conscious organism to have an inner subjective conscious experience, and how and why do these inner subjective conscious experiences arise from seemingly code non-conscious physical processes physicalism can't answer that you have eliminative materialism which just denies the fact that you have inner subjective conscious experiences obviously they got more to say but we could unpack that when we speak to people today we got reductive materialism you got functionalism you got eliminative materialism and inshallah, and inshallah we'll be able to deal with these when we get people on board there's no point unpacking them right now yeah um, but yeah we, let's do that inshallah all right so we got um elmo here in the stream i'm going to add you uh mr elmo just maybe a reminder as well to the guests to try to keep their comments questions short unless you want to engage in a pushback and critique the points yeah so how's it going elmo hey elmo what's oh, up hey man yeah i just came from justin's debate with uh, a christian i moderated uh but i i wanted to join here but um yeah, you got. Um, well, thanks for having me back, guys. No problem. So um, I don't know how long you've been watching, but we're talking about um, consciousness and whether or not it can be grounded on materialism. Did you have a particular comment or question? Mm -hmm. uh, I guess to to Hamza, um, in this case, then you you talked about like how would uh, would we link, I guess, or directly correlate integrated dualism with theism can you clarify like how you you would do that for yourself in your own belief system uh no <laughs> i just don't have it in my head I, I didn't really prepare for the god's existence stuff to be honest um, all right so I, i'll leave it to someone else to answer uh, mm -hmm. i'd have to think about back what i wrote in one of my chapters for my book which had to do mm -hmm. do with the fact that you know does you know, if God is an all-aware being and is yeah. an all-knowing being, does it make sense that he created organisms that have a mind, that have a brain, that can also be aware of themselves as well? Does that follow? 
So it's along the lines of that. Now, mm -hmm. one would then argue now, well, how do you know there is this kind of all-aware being that can bring into existence beings with minds that can be aware of themselves? But mm -hmm. that misses the point of actually having a coherent metaphysic to explain reality, because if you continue like mm -hmm. that, then you'd have no metaphysical assumptions and therefore you'd have no understanding of, of most of reality. So you need what they call a metaphysical stopping point that makes sense of, of reality. So um, I haven't really prepared for it. I don't really remember what I wrote or, or stuff. So mm -hmm. you'd have to ask someone else to be honest. <laughs> okay, so can you tell me like what your definition of consciousness is? Like what exactly is consciousness for you, I guess? Consciousness, okay, so echoing Professor David Chalmers, he makes a distinguishing a distinction between the easy problems and the hard problems, okay? Mm -hmm. So when he discusses the problems of consciousness, he elaborates on what consciousness is. So with regards to the easy problems is that you're able to think. You have a stream of thoughts. You have mm -hmm. the ability to to perform cognitive functions that result mm. in thinking, such as mm. mathematical thinking, you can make inferences, you can make deductive arguments, you can conceptualize, you could infer, you could deduce, you can reflect, you can ponder, you have memory, for example, that's another aspect mm. connected to mm. consciousness. And then the mm. other aspect was, is that you have what you call the experience, the inner subjective conscious experience. So for example, when you eat a marshmallow, something is happening obviously to your physical senses, something is happening in your brain for sure, but you're also undergoing a particular experience eating that nice, soft, I don't know, strawberry flavored marshmallow, whatever kind of marshmallow you like, right? So there's the inner, sub inner, sub inner, inner subjective experiences, like pain and pleasure and the experiences of having, I don't know, a romantic dinner with your wife or whatever mm -hmm. the case may be, right? Um, and mm -hmm. then you have the easier problems, which, you know, one would argue functionalism may address or the other kind of uh, physicalist ontologies may address, which include things like, you know, we have a stream of, of thinking, of conscious thought, we can infer, we can deduce and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So that would basically hopefully summarize what it means uh, when we're saying consciousness mm -hmm. so can i ask you so you said that um for the easy definition like it's the ability to think so would you say that a computer you know that a very complex complex computer is it would you say that's that something that's able to think you know, have these stream of cognitive functions or would you say that oh like consciousness is only limited to biological uh, material and not something like a microchip? It's a very good question. Well, it depends what you mean by thinking. So mm -hmm. if thinking you relate it to meaning and to meaning you relate to intentionality, then computers mm -hmm. don't do anything like that. Computers are just uh, about syntactical arrangements. So mm -hmm. uh, the basis of all computer programs are zeros and ones. So it's based on mm -hmm. syntax, in other words, symbols. It's just a rearrangement of zeros and ones. Do these zeros and ones, are they aware of their own zero and one? and Or are they aware of something outside of themselves, right? Do they have an ability to attach meaning to the symbols? Mm. And that's a kind of interesting argument in consciousness. So 
you know, as uh, Brother Sharif mentioned earlier, he eloquently talked about the kind of computer system and the zeros and ones. And when it comes to computer systems, the problem that you have is that really it's a, you need a mind to interpret the zeros and ones anyway. You need an external mind to do that. And that's why William Hasker, he makes a really good point. He basically says that computer programs or computer systems are just a protraction of human, of human consciousness anyway, of human rationality anyway, right? So can computers think like us? Of course not. Can they do kind of abstract reasoning based on the syntactical arrangements and come up with, you know, very fast kind of uh, solutions to complicate algorithms? For sure. Can computers be seemingly more intelligent than humans in this particular way? 100%. They're already, they're already showing this. But what do you mean by thinking? If you're talking about meaning and intentionality as well, which is the kind of, you know, the conscious stream of thoughts, right? Then absolutely not. Because let me, let me show you what I mean by making a distinction between syntactical and semantic arrangements. So, for example, let me give you three sentences in, in language. Se agaboboli, seni chok sevirum. And mm -hmm. I love you a lot. So mm -hmm. that's Greek, Turkish, and English, okay? Mm -hmm. They all have the same meaning, which is, I love you a lot. Now, say you only know English. If I give you the Greek alphabet and I tell you to put sigma, which is the like the S, sigma, mm -hmm. uh, epsilon, right, which is like the E, mm -hmm. then have a space. And I'll tell you, take the alpha and put it here. Take the gamma mm -hmm. and put it next to the alpha. Take the mm. alpha again, put it next to the gamma. So I could train you on without even talking about meaning on arranging those symbols in a particular way. By virtue, by, by, by virtue of you knowing how to arrange those symbols in a particular way, it will never give rise to the meaning of I love you a lot. You just never know because you'll have no way of attaching the meaning to those symbols, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's an interesting distinction to make between uh, syntactic and semantic arrangements. And computer programs mm. are very similar. They're based on basically zeros and ones fundamentally. And even when you talk about machine learning and all of these crazy beautiful terms that you learn about now in artificial intelligence, it's still reduced to zeros and ones arranged in a particular mm. way. Yeah. So just to wrap this up, Professor John So came, uh, developed a really powerful thought experiment. He was on a plane, I think, when he was thinking about this. And it's called the Chinese room experiment. And he wants to make a distinction between strong AI and weak AI, which is the kind of distinction that we're making now. Can computers really think like we do kind of thing? And uh, the Chinese room experiment in, in summary is this. You have someone in a room. And there are Chinese speakers outside of the room. And the Chinese speakers are giving questions in Chinese to the person in the room. The person in the room does not know Chinese but they do have an English rule book. And the English rule book is telling him, when you see a squiggly thing, plus another squiggly thing that looks like this, then give some cards out to the people outside of the room that include these squiggly things. So he's got a rule book that teaches them how to look at the shapes and the syntactic arrangement of the, of, of, of the symbols and shapes of Chinese, the characters, and the rule book tells them, if you see this type of kind of arrangement, then give them these uh, characters. Now, the people outside of the room, every time they ask a question, they're getting the right answer. 
So the people outside the room who know Chinese, they think the person in the room actually knows Chinese. But he doesn't. Mm. He just has an English rule book that helps him uh, deal with the kind of syntactic arrangements, not the semantic arrangements, because he has no way of adding semantics to syntax, right? So that shows that the computer system can do complex uh, symbolic arrangements or, or syntactic arrangements, but th there's no way of attaching meaning to the symbols. Now, one would there is a reply to this. It's called the systems reply. And one would argue is, well, doesn't the whole system know the meaning? Well, what does that mean? There is no way of the system attaching meaning to the symbols in, in any shape or form. Even if the rule book was in the person's head, they would still not know uh, Chinese, the meaning of, of, of those words. Right? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, one last. Yeah, so yeah I Alma, I just I just want to yeah. say that we've got a bunch of people waiting, so yeah, we, we're sorry, gonna we're gonna have yeah we're gonna have to move on to the next guest. But sorry. uh yeah, yeah, I do appreciate you calling. No, 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 no problem, brother Hamza. But uh, I do appreciate you um calling in and uh, asking yeah. some questions. Thank you guys. Thanks, right, Alma. Take care. Take Alma. care, man. Thank nice to meet you, Hamza. Take care. All right, we're gonna go to uh, Muzzy here. Hey Muzzy, can you hear me? Yeah. Assalamu alaikum. So, uh, what I wanted to ask you is, um, how do you s not reconcile in a way, but square up this idea of, um, you know, like traumatic incidents to like people who have had like brain injuries, who have lost their, um, in a way, sense of self. Like there was a famous um, incident back in the eighteen hundreds when someone got a pole. Um, through the head, it was a train. It's quite famous. They teach it in psychology, medical school, literally everything. And he had a pole uh, go through his um, brain, and his perception changed. But he was still himself, but something changed about him. So I was thinking if they could use this as an argument to say that there's something physical about consciousness. And but just another interesting thought. Obviously, I'm like a medical school student. I'm in my fourth year, so I, you know, like you know, when you study conjoined twins who are conjoined with the brain, it's interesting that they still have this individualistic will, despite uh, sharing motor functions in the brain, which is quite interesting. But then, obviously, I was going to ask you about the um, thing about traumatic brain injuries to see what you guys think. Yeah. I don't know who wants to tackle it first, if anybody. I'll, I'll just say one sentence that uh, I think, I mean, if I'm not misunderstanding this, I think this is more related to the easy problem of consciousness. Because we do, we do acknowledge that there are interactions and there are correlations between the physical aspects of our neural activity and our consciousness, uh, and and this is more a question to do with uh, you know personal identity and mental continuity and stuff, which I think is is a problem that is related to consciousness, but it's not. I don't think it's dire like like the hard problem of consciousness itself, which deals with like uh, self awareness and qualia. But um, yeah, it's 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 a good question. I just I don't think it's 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 it directly tackles the hard problem of consciousness. It, it, all it shows us is that there are correlations between our neurological activity and our uh, perceived personal identity, or even our consciousness, which we do acknowledge. I mean, dualists don't deny that there is. Uh, uh, you know, some kind of a correlation or an inter interaction or interdependence between the physical and the non-physical. Yeah. So yeah. Th that so any, so any any of those scientific uh, uh, um, medical examples denoting any shape or form undermine the kind of independence of non-physical consciousness and the physical brain. 
doesn't undermine it at all in any shape or form. And a really easy thought experiment is to think about someone driving a car, right? So in order for the, so you have a driver, you have a car. In order for the driver to start driving the car, the car has to work, right? If the car doesn't work and the driver is okay, then the, the driver is not going to go anywhere. Conversely, the car, even if it's working and, there's, and the driver's dead, right? The car's not going to go anywhere. So that's a really interesting, simple way of showing that the guy in the car is like the mind and the, and the car itself is like the brain, yeah? Just because they need each other to kind of uh, function in the physical world, it doesn't mean they're the same thing. It's, and that's why you can make a very clear distinction between the driver and the car. Just because the brain is damaged, in, in this case, maybe the car's damaged, maybe, I don't know, the, the, the gear stick's not working properly. If something's going to happen. The, the driver, he may be a fully functional, great driver, but if the gear stick's not working properly, then the car's not going to be moving that well, right? So uh, these examples in medicine, even in medical history, do not undermine in any shape or form the fact that consciousness can be independent to physicality in any shape or form. Um, and yes, I would echo what Abdul said as well. Even if they were to try and make that claim, still doesn't undermine, uh, doesn't solve the hard problem of consciousness, which is what is it like for an individual human being to have an inner subjective conscious experience? And why do these phenomenal conscious states, inner subjective conscious states arise from neurobiological physical things in the first place? So that would be my answer to that particular question. Right. And even when you have cases like when they remove half of someone's brain, it's not like you have half of the consciousness or half of the person. There's still a unified consciousness. So if you thought that there was a direct correlation, we would expect to find something different. And interestingly enough, there are some people you can actually look it up. I forget the name of uh, the brain disorder or issue, but there are people that actually only have 10% of the normal brain matter, and yet they can function to up to 75% as quote-unquote normal as we would with a full brain. So if that were true, we would expect to see something di radically different than that. So I think that also helps to understand and capture what's happening. Well, to throw yeah, something as span in the work. Oh, sorry, Sharif. Just very quickly, to throw something as a span into the works. There's this new thing called neurocardiology that's been discussed for the past twenty or thirty years or something. Yeah. That the, the heart now has its own brain. It's got like forty thousand <laughs> neurons, right? And I think stomach as well. Has... Sorry. The stomach as well. Yeah, Apparently, the stomach. Would you believe it? Yeah. And, and it makes it's very interesting when you refer to some hadith talking about the stomach, right? The stomach lies, right? Obviously, there's an interpretation to that, but it just gives a different spin to these hadith. So the heart, you know, they're, they're, and, and, and neuroscientists, by the way, are not, I haven't studied this properly. It's in the literature. It's in the medical literature. They're not studying this properly. It's actually cardiologists that are studying the kind of uh, the brain of the heart, if you like. It's got about 40,000 neurons. And this just shows the scientific method is based on induction. We'll have new data that can undermine previous conclusions. It's in flux. So God knows, you know, and that's why there's been some evidence to show. I'm not saying it's conclusive, but when heart, when people have heart transplants, people's memories, they have different memories or slight personality, personality <laughs> changes as well. So, you know, what are they are going to say about that? That now consciousness is, is in the heart? Okay, well, thank you. That's like the Islamic paradigm. Jazakallah, you see my point? I just want to throw that in there because that's very interesting. Sorry, bro. Yeah. 
Yep. And uh, Muzzy, uh, you can make a quick comment and then we're going to have to go to the next guest if you have any final thoughts. Yeah, I was just going to say with what you said about it's the um, they split the corpus callosum, which is the band of like nerve fibers in the middle of the brain. And you're right, consciousness doesn't really split. And I've seen atheists try to redefine it and saying that we've discovered that consciousness changes. But they, they mean like uh, certain like physical, emotional experiences because you're affecting the physical brain. So they tried to redefine the term. But yeah, it's funny that even when you split the brain, the consciousness is still unified. Yeah. All right. Well, appreciate you coming on and asking your question, Muzzy. Uh, I guess we'll talk to you another time. Salam alaikum, brother. Just really right, quickly so, before you move on to the next guest, really quickly, I just yeah. wanted to make one point, which is that I think the discussion here is not necessarily about whether if you affect the neurons, are you going to affect certain perceptions or emotional states? I think the discussion is, is that does the brain state, does the physical matter of the brain, does it provide us the complete picture of consciousness? Can it bridge the gap between understanding the physical processes of the brain and consciousness itself? And the point being is that it doesn't. And it's not because we just don't know the science enough. It's because it's an in-principle problem. There's yes. an unbridgeable gap, yeah? So you mm. can, so even if, I think there was a question somebody asked uh, in, a, in a comment when we were advertising this uh, stream. He said, well, yeah, but you could, you know, do a head transplant, yeah? And you could, you know, take the consciousness of a person into another person. I said, I said okay, look, even if they were able to do this, it still does not explain consciousness. Yeah, and I think Hamza's exa example of the car and the driver is a very good example in order to explain that point. It's not really explaining where that consciousness comes from. It's just simply explaining that one of the facets or the vehicle by which consciousness comes into the world is through a brain. Right, right. All right, we're going to go to the next guest. We've got Adnan here. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Uh, I have a quick question. Uh, what do you guys think is the Islamic definition of consciousness? Not like the philosophical, you know, in terms of the Western tradition, but what is the Islamic? Like, where is it somewhere we can point in the Quran and Sunnah and say, this is consciousness? Mm -hmm. That's my question, basically. Uh, I don't know which one you guys want to start to address that. That's a little bit out of my wheelhouse. <laughs> I think the question is, is when we're talking about consciousness, are we talking about a phenomena that we can ascertain from the mind by our investigation? Or are we talking about a phenomena that requires some textual information to inform us about? For example, when we talk about angels, malaika, that's not something that I can sense rationally. Yeah, or scientifically in order to come to the conclusion that angels exist that comes from the text so because it comes from the text and the text informs us <coughs> we don't try to rationalize it now other things that we can sense and we can understand for example the earth is round yeah or is a sphere then we can sense these things so then we can interpret and understand that from the reality so this this would be considered dalil akli yeah, rational evidence as opposed to Dalil Naqli, which is like textual evidence from the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Now, there may be an overlap. Yeah, So there are certain things that the text will refer to, which are phenomenas that you can sense within the real world. Yeah, One of those may be the aspects of consciousness or the fitra of a human being, yeah, where you know the Prophet mentioned that every human being is born upon fitra. 
Now there is ikhtilaf, difference of opinion as to what the fitra means. Some explain it to mean the desire to worship one God. Some believe it's the innate, you know, instinctual behaviors within human beings. Others say it's the aql, the mind. There's discussions within the uh, mentions in the Quran about the qalb, the heart. Some explain this to be like the rational center, the ability to make those thinking processes. So there are things that the text may say which has some correspondence to reality. So if we can, we can try to harmonize the two, being sincere to the text and also correct to the reality. If there isn't, then it's a textual matter which we believe in and we don't try to superimpose upon the text. So the original discussion about consciousness is a discussion that exists that we can sense, we can talk about in the real world, irrespective of whether we've got revelation or not. Yeah. So that's where the the area of knowledge exists. And in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about, you know, uh, that there are signs for ulul alba, people of thinking, of depth, yatafakkarun, people of thought. So there's mentions many points about this uh, phenomena of being able to think and come to certain conclusions uh, and being rational uh, and come to conclusions that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists, the Quran is the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, either there's a rational process that's going on in the mind. I don't know if uh, Hamza wants to add or mention anything. No, further. I think that was very good, but I think just to add to that, I think some brothers, they mistakenly... Yeah, sure. Uh, so... I, some brothers and, and sisters, they think that when we talk about this issue, um, can you hear me? Yes, we can, can you guys hear you. Hear me? I think there's a bit of a lag. I think there's a lag, okay, sorry, yeah. Hamza, but so, we can hear you. Oops. Oops, looks like we lost him there. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry about that, uh, brother. But Adnan, um, has that answered your question or... Because yeah, what yeah, it is, the it, temptation is to talk about nafs and ruh, yeah? Exactly. We have to be careful whether these things are something that's mentioned in the text, yeah? And they're talking about the phenomena of consciousness, or they're just talking about the text that's mentioned in the Quran and Sunnah, but we shouldn't try to interpret it or rationalize it in the way. So Hamza's back now, so I think, inshallah, we can go back to Hamza. Yes, sorry. So, basically... Some people conflate the whole consciousness issue with the with the reality of the ruh and the soul. And we have to understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he talks about the ruh, he said it's the command of your Lord and you've been given just little knowledge. So we're not going into the in-depth, you know, what is this, the nature of the soul and the essence of the soul, the makeup of the soul. This, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who created the soul and created us is telling us we've been given very little knowledge. What we're doing is, if you read the Quran and the Sunnah, just like what Brother Shuri said, our understanding that we have the ability to have inner, inner subjective conscious experiences is assumed throughout the Quran and the Sunnah. It's assumed throughout the Quran and the Sunnah. In so many different hadith, so many different ayat in the Quran, the issue of that we have inner subjective conscious experiences is assumed in the Quran and the Sunnah. So even if you wanted some kind of textual evidence, then you can go to the text and understand, right, what is the assumption here? Well, the assumption is that there is a conscious human being that has an ability to have inner subjective conscious experiences. And that's not necessarily the same as saying, oh, we're going to know what the essence of the soul is now. No, this is beyond us uh, because it's part of the unseen. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us that we have been given just little knowledge about the ruh. So 
I just wanted to add that because people usually mention that as some kind of you can't talk about this, it's un-Islamic because Allah says you can't talk about the Ruh or you don't have much information about it. But hopefully I've I've made that distinction, inshallah. So yeah, wanna I wanna add a very small part just because it's it's important to contextualize these discussions. And as I mentioned earlier, that the hard problem of consciousness is only a hard problem as far as materialism or science is concerned. The Quran doesn't really need to come down and tell you that there is consciousness or what consciousness is. You you need to be conscious to read the Quran, right? And the the common sense understanding of our experience is a dualistic understanding. Like people commonsensically have a dualistic ontology of the world. The problem comes, the radical shift comes is when the materialist comes and says that, no, no, everything is reducible to the physical. Now that radical shift, that's not something that you find that's not a fitri thing that that you found throughout human history. It's not widespread in that sense. So the Quran is not; it doesn't come down to give you these things about the fitri aspects that we already know. We 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 have to be conscious in order to read the Quran or receive it or or, or whatever. And as Brother Hamza said, what consciousness is isn't really this discussion. This disc and and I don't think we can ever say that because Allah says, uh, It's it's from the command of my Lord. It's not something we can ever, uh, you know, uh, uh, come to know about in detail. But uh, the question is, what worldview? best accounts for this reality and uh, what worldview is completely incompatible uh, with this reality i think that's 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 the issue but the existence of consciousness or self-awareness is is something that's kind of taken for granted everywhere yep all right brother well we appreciate the question we're gonna have to move on to the next guest now but uh Thank you thanks for calling in all right salam alaikum brother Okay, let's move to Tushar we have here. Hello, guys. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. It was How great. you doing? <laughs> I'm right, hey. not too bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thank you, guys. Uh, I'm, I think I'm here first time with you guys. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Right. Do um, you have a comment or question? Yes, comment. Uh, consciousness, as your topic today is consciousness, is a miracle. I don't think so, it's a miracle. Uh, when he said the. Can you please explain when David Chalmers said the hard problem of consciousness, what that means? I'm sorry, you said, can we explain the hard uh, yeah, problem uh, of consciousness from yes, David yes. Chalmers? Yes, what that means when David Chalmers said hard problem of consciousness. Yeah, Brother Hamza touched on it earlier. I don't know if you heard it, but maybe he can just repeat it again for you. Please, if you can, yeah. Well, maybe yeah, not sure, very I briefly think. like it. Yeah, I'll, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll pull out his quote for you. <laughs> it's right in front of me. So, uh, David Chalmers, what he says about consciousness is as follows. He says, the really hard problem of consciousness is the problem of experience. When we think and perceive, there is a way of information processing, but there is also a subjective aspect. This subjective aspect is experience. When we see, for example, we experience visual sensations the felt quality of redness, the experience of dark and light, the quality of depth in the physical field. Yeah. Other experiences go along with perception in different modalities, the sound of a clarinet, the, the smell of mothballs. Then there are bodily sensations from pains to orgasms, mental images that are conjured up internally, the felt quality yeah. of emotion, and the experience yeah. of the stream of conscious thought. And what yeah. he says is as follows. 
what unites all these states is that there is something there is something it is like to be in them all of them yeah. are states of experience if any yeah. problem qualifies as the problem of consciousness it is this one in this central sense of consciousness an organism and a mental state is conscious if there is something it is like to be in that state and in his other works and in the same literature he talks about that's one of the main problems of the hard problem which is what we don't know what it's like for a conscious organism to have a particular inner subjective conscious experience and you yeah. also have for example thomas uh, you have um, professor alter when he talks about the ontological problem and he says how does my brain's activity generate those experiences why yeah. those and others yeah. indeed why is any physical event accompanied by conscious experience this yeah. set of such problems is known as the hard problem of consciousness yeah so, uh, so those are the brother hamza uh, yeah. just uh, sorry to uh, sorry to interrupt you 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 spot on you 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 explain all the uh, whatever as you, i also read uh, david chalmers and everything you explain all the parts which is subject to the brain the hard problem of consciousness the part you missed uh, i'm sorry with the precisely i'm saying that the hard problem of consciousness is who experienced the blankness science neuroscience is stuck on that what you said this is right absolutely right whatever have we experienced we experienced dreams taste love emotions everything is we have found it, it there are some neurons in your brain which experience that now let me but explain you that if you don't mind so the where the issue come from issue come from when we are awake as you are awake and we are awake we experience the world with our senses i think someone typing behind is it yeah uh, yeah thank you so when we experience the world we experience with our senses with our smell our, we look at things we touch things so we experience that so this is what we call awakened world and then we have a dream world where you dream the things like you know when you which is imagined by your brain and you also experience that as it is like uh, as it has happened like you know let's say you wake up tomorrow morning and you say oh i had a dream last night and i felt about it like you know probably gone for holiday or you had a bad nightmare or whatever you experience that but your only brain you know imagine this but the problem comes from when you didn't have a dream like you know let's say you slept one night and you wake up in the morning and you said i didn't have a dream last night now the problem come here how do you know you didn't have a dream when your brain not active your body is not active so that's the hard problem of consciousness which means we the science is agree to there is there is something which witness the blankness but we cannot establish that yeah i don't know i don't know if that's the correct reading of the current literature from my understanding the hard problem is based on two main questions which is what is it like for me to have a particular conscious experience and what yeah. is it like for you to have a particular conscious experience so for example we could have the two identical meals we could have a biryani right yeah yeah so we both have the same biryani i'm yeah, having a I love that. subject yeah <laughs> I'm having an inner subjective conscious experience and so are you. I know yeah. what my subjective experience feels like. Yeah, yeah. Hamza like. my brother just a second. But, but it is an experience. Yeah, let, but let me finish. Yeah, the please. problem right. is so I just want to articulate the problem so you can understand the distinctions that are being made. The problem now is if I were to try and find out what it's like for you to have the same biryani 
knowing everything about your brain will not lead to me knowing about your particular experience as we discussed earlier in this in this in this podcast but it's still subject to your senses i'm sorry sorry to interrupt you that but it's still your senses senses experience people can have a different taste maybe some people gonna like biryani some people not gonna like it so it is is subject to your uh, just a second guys it is subject to your uh, senses your taste smell touching we yep. all have that we all have yep. that it can be different that's nothing to do with the con- but the conscious plays the important part but we all experience that biryani with that, with that conscious it's in a well i don't know how much uh, well okay probably next time or whatever but th- that's the point i want to uh, make it uh, the conscious no, the problem yeah. heart the heart problem of consciousness is who witnessed the blankness who told you you didn't have a dream last night that's the we are stuck in as a science I think I think no one's disagreeing with the fact that you need you need senses you need um and 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 there is someone experiencing something that's not undermining the fact that there isn't a problem there is a problem yes. the issue is is when we use those senses and we have experiences then yeah can we know the reality of someone else's experiences by just using your own senses but we have nothing to do with the other's experience it's all about ours your experience yeah. always going to be different than mine well, but who's experiencing that's the one but, thing look uh, for yeah, example so, uh, uh, if so, i give you i'm sorry to interrupt you let's yeah, say you but, eat, you eat in biryani i eat in biryani we it depend on our likes and dislikes good or bad but we all have experience guys are making food. me hungry yeah <laughs> 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 right, i know yeah, yeah me too <laughs> but yeah, this is so, like you know yeah please carry we on, agree yeah. we agree we're both going to have experience so the question here is the first part of the hard problem of consciousness is then what is your experience like from my perspective if i were to map out everything in your brain understand all of your descriptions of that experience it would never allow me to understand what it's like for you to have that experience so what you're saying is exactly exactly what we're saying and that's one part of the hard problem and the second part of the hard problem is well how do you have this inner subjective experience arising from a so-called physical brain and a physical brain is based upon physical processes which are fundamentally blind and non-conscious. So you're right. So what you're saying is this is a different way of of what we're saying. So I think we've just is a slight misunderstanding in in what in the way it's been articulated but I agree with you. We're both having experiences for sure. That's uh, it. That's but, the main thing, yeah. But but that's that's that's, but that's, to, that's absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Too short. Yes. Just, just Yes, please. Do you agree that there is a hard problem of consciousness? Uh, beg your pardon. I, I, I think I missed that. Can you repeat the question, please? I, I said, do you, do you believe that there is a hard problem in, con- in no, the discussion? No, 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 no. I don't. You think believe it can be problem. explained? Yes, yes. It's already explained. Oh, uh, it's already explained. Yes, 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 yes. It's already explained. So it do you explained. understand what Hamza said? Do you understand what Hamza said? Hamza said yeah, yeah. that your ability to taste and experience biryani is going to be very. It's going to be. different to the experience of hamza and even yeah. if you want to say that they're the same there's no way you can describe them such that you can say that they are the same but that's we not on about what is the taste of biryani we are on about who experienced that no no in, in when we talk about hard problem of consciousness there's like yeah. two areas there's one which is yeah. called qualia which is our experience yeah. first time external no not first time just experience of the world If yeah. I see red, if I feel pain, this is an yeah. experience. It's called qualia. 
And mm -hmm. the, there's a first aspect of uh, that Hamza mentioned, first problem also, so there's two parts of the problem. One is qualia. The other one is how does physical non-conscious matter produce consciousness? Who does so, that? So how does that? That's the problem. The problem is how do you explain that? Can no, that be reducible to the neurons sir, sir, alone? So okay, right. I now we are mixing it up. It is very simple. It's not rocket science. If you just put your the, what 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 awaken world experience like what we awake now that everybody will have a different. We agree to that. Even though like you know we have all have different opinion on anything. That's our experience. And the dream world also we'll have all experiences separately. But the question raised, who experienced the deep world, deep sleep world? We all have deep sleeps, but we don't know, we know, we know who experienced that. So who That's the common experience? Let me just ask, let me ask you a question because I'm trying to understand you. Yeah, you, you don't think that, there's two things. Do you think there's a hard problem of consciousness and that it's been solved? Yes, or, you, yes. or you don't think that there's even one to start out with. That's what I'm well, trying to get from you. Well, there is no heart problem of consciousness. The, the, the only it's very, it, it is only heart problem of consciousness on the basis on, on the on the subject of science. Because according to science, there is no new. Would you say on materialism uh, 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 that it would be a heart problem? If, if you let me finish, my brother. All the science is saying we don't have any neuron active when you go to deep sleep. So that's why we can't prove it. They, they acknowledge science. Science acknowledge consciousness. They say there is something which is experienced nothing, blankness. But we can't prove it because there's no neurons with that. That's why it's called by, by, uh, That's why it says consciousness is not byproduct of your brain. It has nothing to do with your thinking, your likes and dislikes. That's the. That's what I want to say. That's uh, it. Maybe, yeah, maybe just to try to simplify it a bit further, I want to ask you a question because you were saying it isn't rocket science. I think it's much more difficult than rocket science. I mean, rocket science you can <laughs> you can you can explain fully in physical terms. I mean, there's no mystery in rocket science. Yeah. It's difficult. I agree that it's difficult, but there's no mystery. But uh, let me try to give ask you this question. Uh, yeah. So let's say let's say you're looking at a red car, right? So you yeah. have this experience of seeing a red car. Yeah. Now, now we both agree that there are these physical aspects that lead to the experience, as in the light hitting your retina and everything else that follows. I'm yeah. not very good with that. And then you experience the red car. Now, the question yeah. is, from your perspective, just picture yourself looking at the red car. Yeah. Is your experience of that red car identical to the physical processes that are occurring? Are they the same thing? Yeah, because you're experiencing that red car. As you yes, and yes, me. But, but, but remember, remember, I'm asking about your experience, Tushar's yeah, experience. Yeah, right now, my, Tushar yeah. is looking at the red car. Yeah. Would you say that this experience is yeah. literally the electrons and the atoms bumping into each other no, out there and leading no. to the... Are they the same thing? No, 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 no. It's not the same thing. Okay, so there's thing. a gap. That explanatory no, no, no. gap is what no, we no. call <laughs> the hard problem of consciousness. My brother, like, you know, what he's saying, when, when I look at the red car, but okay. my sense, my senses say, my neurons say it is a red color. Well, it doesn't say red color. My neurons doesn't say red. We made up this word. And like, you know, if I speak in Urdu no, no, or don't. some other language... Forget about the I, words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Experience. It's it's a my experience. I agree to that. And as a like now we're speaking in English, we will call it red. Okay. Right. So this is a common. This is the experience of my neurons. We are. We, it's nothing to do with that. It is about who. It, it is about. It is my friend. This is all about who experience your brain. 
That's the main thing. Uh, I think Tusha, I think we're actually saying, I, I think we're saying the same thing here. Yes. Yeah. I think what you're saying is that it's not a hard problem because, yeah, we know that there is a mind, yeah, in the person, yeah. independent of his physical product, you know, physicality that experiences things that therefore, you know, forget about you know, trying to explain how the physical causes the consciousness. There's yeah. just something called consciousness. There is just something yeah. called the mind. Is that what you're saying to No, 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 no. It's not uh, right. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't get your name, my fr uh, brother. My uh, name Sharif. is Sharif. Yeah. Sharif, yeah. Look, uh, mind have nothing to Why? The, the reason science says there's a heart problem of consciousness, because science cannot prove there is any neuron who experience emptiness. That's why they say it's a hard problem for us to prove. Because as you can as you can understand, science needs evidence to prove it. Anything if they have to prove. Like you know, physical evidence. Like, you know, they need to like you know go to the algorithms and they need to go formulas and stuff like that. So that's why they can prove it. The reason they're saying it's a hard problem because they can't prove it. But they acknowledge something experienced the blankness. That's the two different things. Yeah, but but brother, I think what you need to understand is it's a hard problem in relationship to materialism. Of course, we don't think it's a hard problem here because we have a good response to it based on our prior ontological commitments. Yeah. But the question is whether or not materialism can respond adequately to the hard no, problem. Of consciousness. No. That's what the question is. Materialism have nothing to do with consciousness. Like, you know, we are not put it like this way. If we don't if 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 the time we didn't know that there's a gravity. Because of gravity, we walk on Earth. So you think we were, we used to fly? We used to walk anyway. So it doesn't make any materialism. I don't think you're understanding the point. No, no, no. Tushar, you need to understand the point that we're making. Yeah, you're, you're not and understanding even, the point. Even the, the philosophers of the mind or the neuroscientists, is what they're saying is this, is that it's a hard problem because they yeah. can't bridge the gap between physical matter and conscious experience they can't do that that's the yeah, problem yeah, yeah, that yeah. they're sensing yeah. that's that's now, it what because this is what i'm saying they don't have any neurons to connect that right are you a materialist are you are you a materialist no no okay then you don't have a hard problem of consciousness you're good so, what, sorry? <laughs> if you're not a materialist then you don't have a problem we're in agreement that's basically what we're telling you we're yeah, saying well, this is a problem for somebody who says that the world is entirely explainable by the physical and chemical processes that are out there. That is all you need to explain the world. Someone who says that is going to face a problem. You're not a materialist, so you're okay. So, so we yeah, agree uh, that it's not a hard problem. Uh, if, yeah, do, you, do you think that materialists can explain it by purely uh, physical means? That's the question. Well, it's depend on them. I don't. I don't think so. Materialistic would be any bothered about like anything to do with consciousness. It's a, it, brother. It's not about being bothered. It's whether yeah. or not. It, it's a philosophical well, problem. It's whether or not the materialist paradigm can well, account adequately well, for well, consciousness. My, my I friend, don't uh, think that you can. I don't Jack, think that you think it can. J Jack, well, it's depend on them. I don't know how they're gonna take it. But all I'm here to guys to put add a bit like you know my side of it into the conversation and that's it. I don't know what they think and good luck to them and whatever they think. Yeah, I think we're in agreement, Tushar. <laughs> so I think you're you're on our side here and we're all in right. agreement. Yeah, yeah. I think and, we're and just move just on for now. the record, materialists do care to the extent that they come up with these very radical ideas. 
like they would even, even deny the existence of it, mental states, like limited yeah, materialism. Uh, but, if, but, you, if, you, if, if, if you guys talking about atheists, I don't buy anything from them. Like, no, okay, fine. Then, then we're on the yeah, same page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we're on the same page. You're just uh, maybe articulating it a bit differently, but we're on the same Sorry, page. But I, I appreciate you uh, coming on and asking questions. Hello. We're going to have to move on to the next guest, though. All right, Tushar? Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for coming on. All right, take care. Um, let's see who we got here. I think we've got Mirza waiting. I think he's been waiting a while. How you doing? Assalamualaikum. Waalaikumsalam. So I just have a, a question. So the discussion around consciousness and the heart problem, effectively we're saying that this is something that is coming from God himself as in the source of consciousness so if you know your opponents were to reply saying that you are effectively putting in a god of the gap argument how would you respond to that well Just we didn't actually quickly. we didn't actually okay. make it necessarily yeah. an argument for god is this sultan but, that i know yes yes it's me all right okay assalamu alaikum brother it's good to have you so okay. so i think just uh jake and for the other brothers so he's asked a question is this a God of the gaps argument? Yeah. So, so mm. in essence, we can't explain this. Therefore, we're going to put God in, into it. So we can't explain conscious. We put God. I think the, no. the and I'll let the brothers answer as well. But I think the issue is this, is that it's not a God of the gaps because the God of the gaps presupposes that there's a point which we just don't know. But if we do a bit more investigation, we'll get the knowledge. Yeah. So it's a case an imprint. It's a problem of just not having enough of the science for so far. What we're saying here about consciousness is that it's an in-principle problem. It's not a problem that can be bridged by greater knowledge. Yeah. So it's not going to be solved just by, ex uh, you know, getting more and more information uh, and more and more knowledge. But rather, we will be able, from a scientific point of view, access that knowledge. That doesn't necessar necessarily mean that it points straight away, okay, therefore God exists. But what it does do is it provides greater indications that a creator exists, especially I think uh, in our previous streams, um, we had discussions and inshallah, we're going to have another one about uh, the uh, was it stage two of the cosmological argument. And if Hans is free, it'd be great to have him to discuss that. But in stage one of the cosmological argument where we came to the conclusion of a necessary being or necessary foundation, and then the question becomes, well, is it conscious or not? Well, you've got an added reason to believe that this necessary foundation, necessary being would be conscious because we can't explain consciousness by materialism. So for the existence of consciousness, you would need something to have caused it that itself is beyond quote unquote contingent or material beings. And therefore that would be a creator. Yeah, I, I think uh, maybe let the uh, other guys as well to answer that question as well from Sultan. Yep. Yeah. I just want to point out that this is not necessarily the discussion we're having is not necessarily an argument for God. And Hamza touched on that a bit earlier, but it is an argument against materialism. That's what the argument really is. It's an argument against materialism, not necessarily an argument for God's existence. But what we would say, and, and Hamza kind of hinted at this earlier, is that in the theistic picture where where we have this ultimate mind in a sense that is God at the very foundation of everything that is responsible for creating everything. 
it fits much more uh, naturally and nicely in a theistic picture of the world rather than an atheistic one or a naturalistic one. So it's more based on a worldview perspective of seeing which one fits more neatly and easily into one's ontology, given your prior commitments about the world. And I would argue that it, you know, in a probabilistic sense, not in, in terms of making a such a forceful necessary argument, but I think we can see that consciousness fits much more easily and nicely with a picture of God being at the very beginning and center of everything and responsible for everything rather than at a mindless sort of uh, production out of nothing or whatever you want to say. So I think that's kind of what we're, we're explaining. We're not even necessarily going into making an argument for God's existence. We would just say it's an argument against materialism and that the overall structure of one's worldview consciousness fits very nicely with a theistic picture rather than an atheistic one. So I hope that answers your question, uh, brother. Yeah, that's just just a broader a broader point there. Sorry, because I think this is important. The, this whole God of the gaps thing is a really overused, you know, cliche that you know sometimes atheists just think it's a trump card that can just destroy any argument. But um, <clears throat> thing is, nobody here is saying that I don't know X, therefore Y. Nobody's saying that. Uh, what you what you can say, like if I say that based on the information I have, this is the best explanation, for example, if I make an abductive argument, that's not, uh, that's not a God of the gaps argument. Uh, and, and I also think that alongside the probabilistic arguments, there are deductive arguments. Uh, I'm going to have to read Brother Hamza's papers on that, but I think the deductive arguments, the C.S. Lewis style arguments from reason are actually deductive arguments that make reason and naturalism incompatible and the conclusion of these arguments it actually concludes the existence of god and that's also not a god of the gaps argument of course there were uh, he made modifications to the argument there were many uh, um, responses to it peter van inwagen wrote a few papers on it but i think all in all i think it's a very solid argument that makes naturalism and and uh, um, reason in general or the reliability of our reason incompatible and it concludes god in a non question begging way and in it has nothing to do with god of the gaps whatsoever right yeah uh, all right brother we appreciate your question i think um yeah. we're going to have to move on to the next guest now but really appreciate you coming on thank you all right thanks assalamu alaikum all right, so I'm going to go to uh, Mo L real quick. We got here. Assalamu alaikum, Mo. Alaikum salam. How are you guys doing? I'm Good. How are you? Mo. Okay, so I have a few comments I want to say, and hopefully Hamza, brother Hamza Zorfus can elaborate, you know. So uh, I would I believe that consciousness is uh, mystical, okay? It's from the divine at the end of the day, because, uh, or else if we deduce it uh, materialistically, it becomes um, we're like zombie robots at the end of the day, biological zombie robots. You know what I'm saying? But nonetheless, uh, it seems as if the academic atheists are uh, presupposing things beside Allah, beside God, like panpsychism, for example. And they're taking baby steps towards Allah eventually. Because th th that's the ultimate truth at the end of the day, Allah. You cannot presuppose something beyond that. And it's innate and it provides a coherent worldview and uh, f uh, foundational worldview at the end of the day. You know, it's coherent, it's in line with our 
rational faculties. At the end of the day, what I'm trying to say is this. We have a concept that is panpsychistic as well. Um, the angels and um, everything is conscious of Allah. All the material things in this world is conscious of the create uh, of the ultimate being. So this panpsychism pan doesn't provide a justification still. You know what I'm saying? So this is all I wanted to say. If Hamza can elaborate and emphasize more on uh, on what I said, that would be great. Thanks. Salam alaikum. Mo'el, my dear brother. It's so, Muhammad yeah. al-Arabi. Muhammad, mashallah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so basically, what I would say is, well, it depends what conception of panpsychism you adopt. So if you believe that, like the, the fundamental building blocks of the constituents of things have a form of proto-consciousness, then that doesn't necessarily tie in line with the Islamic narrative, because from what I understand, uh, Everything has maybe a form of consciousness. Allah says in the Quran that you know everything in the cosmos, you know, praises Allah, glorifies Allah, but you just don't know how. Allah says you don't know the how. But what's interesting when you look at that hadith concerning the tree that cried, or you know, and and other non-human objects, if you like, that seem to have some form of consciousness, it was always in reference to it having a kind of unified conscious experience. The hadith and the ayat, from what I understand, and, and, and I, I, I'm willing to be corrected on this, is that it refers to these whole things that have a unified sense of consciousness. Panpsychism, or at least a particular conception of panpsychism, may agree with that, but they specifically say that the individual constituent parts or the fundamental building blocks of the individual things they have a form of proto-consciousness and they may affirm a unified conscious experience but the problem with that conception of panpsychism is well how do you make sense of a unified conscious experience if that thing that whole thing that is having that conscious experience is made up of individual parts or things or elements if you like that have forms of consciousness they don't know how to basically square the circle here so i wouldn't say the Islamic narrative adopts a panpsychism from this perspective, but yes, you may want to argue that that trees are conscious, mountains are conscious, you know, everything in the cosmos praises Allah, but Allah says you don't know how, but you can at least make the inference that when Allah mentions these things in the Quran or in the Sunnah, you see that it's referred to whole things that had a unified sense of consciousness. But rather, panpsychism says something different, especially this conception of panpsychism that's the individual parts that have a form of total consciousness. And that's why the detractors against panpsychism argue well, how do you make sense of unified conscious experiences? So, yeah, so I think that clarifies my uh, I think Hamza broke up I slightly think, then. Yeah, I think Hamza, we might well, be well, losing you? it. Yeah, did you get the uh, did you get the gist of what he that, said? Uh, Hamza was saying. Okay, so he's saying that basically he's talking about proto-conscious. Is that it? There is a distinction between Islamic panpsychism and uh, consciousness in uh, in what exactly? Because I, I can't fathom that. Hamza, could you explain what do you mean by collective consciousness? Well, for example, when I'm looking at my computer screen, I'm having a unified conscious experience. I'm not basically having a conscious experience of every single pixel individually. Right. Yeah. So when I look at my, I'm not 
it's not an, a, an accumulation and amalgamation of all of these individual conscious experiences of every individual pixel. That would be a total nightmare. I would never, I wouldn't be able to have any proper, uh, meaningful uh, experience. So when we experience things, I'm experiencing the whole, right? So likewise, when the Quran and Sunnah refer to non-human objects like trees or stones or or or, or mountains that seem to have some kind of consciousness. But even though Allah says everything in the cosmos praises Allah, but we just don't know how. So to elaborate more on that, I think wouldn't be that useful. But even if you were to make the point that there are other things that can be conscious other than humans, the point is the Quran and Sunnah refer to them as having a holistic experience, a a a a a a a a a a unified conscious experience. But panpsychism, especially. A, that particular conception of panpsychism that, that we're talking about, it, it, it agrees with that, but it says that the whole has individual parts or things or fundamental building blocks or elements, whatever the case may be, that have forms of proto-consciousness. And that's why the detractors against panpsychism say, how can individual components of a whole thing have individual parts of consciousness? How can you now make a case that that thing has a unified sense of consciousness if every single thing that uh, that it contains has proto-consciousness. That's one of the kind of arguments against panpsychism. So what I would say to Brother Muhammad is, I wouldn't say that Islam says agrees with panpsychism. Um, I would more say uh, because we don't, we wouldn't really articulate the case, or we can't make that strong inference from the Quran and Sunnah that the individual parts of the mountain or the individual parts of the tree are actually conscious as well. Yes, we can affirm the hadith that the tree cried, so it had a unified conscious experience, but can we now make the panpsychist claim that every single part of the tree had a form of consciousness? That's something that you can't infer from the hadith and you can't infer from the Quran and the Sunnah. So my conclusion is, I would not say, I would not agree with the idea that Islam agrees with panpsychism from that perspective. But yeah, so if it, can we Hamza, say if, yeah. Possible, yeah. I was going to say, so if I, if I understand what you're saying, and maybe also to explain to uh, Muhammad Mo'el, uh, when I experience something, it's not every molecule in my body and every atom and every subatomic particle that is now consciously experiencing it with me. Yeah, so it's not every single part that's having this conscious experience. It's me as a as a whole being. Yeah. So is is that what you've basically said? This is the problem which causes this this discussion about panpsychism, which is that in essence, when you experience something, your or every molecule, every atom, every electron within your whole body is also experiencing it, but they're not having their own experiences. It's you having your experience. Of the whole. I want to add something. What about the hadith that says uh, the hand will testify, you know, and uh, so on. Your limbs will testify against you if you have used them in a wrong way. What What is that supposed to mean? Wouldn't that be in line with such uh, uh, thinking? Or no? Is that a question to Hamza? Anyone, I mean, Hamza would be great because he's the guest. You know? Hamza. <laughs> uh, yeah. You're not interested in speaking to us, are you? No, no, I spoke to you about the lot, man. <laughs> it's my first time Hamza, speaking to Hamza. <laughs> yeah, so did he catch yeah, that? So yeah, so 
yeah, I did. I, I caught it. I, I wouldn't know how to answer that. I haven't looked at the okay. specific tafsir concerning what does it mean when the hand speaks on the day of judgment. So I'm not going to talk about something that I haven't really analyzed or read no, about. That's fine. I have my kind of, I have my intuitions on that. I don't think it actually means that per se. Um, okay. It's more of the fact that, you know, um, that type of language is using the Quran to make an emphasis that our, our deeds will be exposed on the day of judgment. What our hands did is going to come out on the day of judgment and we're going to be taken to account. But I'm not going to make a categorical statement because I haven't really analyzed the the, the, the ayat in question. So I, I allow our beloved Sharif to explain that further, inshallah. Okay, yeah. well, I, mean, I, I think in a sense, Mo, I think in a sense, Mo, it's like almost theologically insignificant. Like in, in the sense that... Um, you, whether you have, I mean, I, I too wouldn't know what to say about the hadith and the the, the tafsir of the hadith, but but uh, it could it could either be that they're conscious or they're not. But either way, we don't really have that issue in our worldview because there's no problem with anything at all being conscious. So I, I just don't think it's it's very important. I mean, once you do have this dualistic understanding of the world, and once you have this overarching worldview that can account for this subjective first-person experience, um, the finer details of that aren't very significant, I think, philosophically or theologically, in my point of view. Really. Okay. So uh, that's it. Thanks. Assalamu alaikum. All right, we've got Momo here. He's been waiting a while. I had a quick question for uh, Brother Hamza. It's actually regarding the same topic of panpsychism. So basically, uh, there's like many narrations regarding uh, like, uh, you know, how the hill talks to the prophet and how stones also talk to the prophet. And stuff like that, yes. and yeah, as as the the previous brother mentioned, like the hand and like testifying. So, and there's also like other narrations regarding how the sun prostrate, the sun and moon prostrate to Allah. So doesn't that kind of like signify like uh, some sort of uh, pants, like I don't know, like some oneness of consciousness or something? Like, well. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to repeat the same thing I said. Like, the particular conception of panpsychism we're talking about is that individual parts of the whole are also conscious. But when you look at the hadith concerning the hand or the stone or the sun or whatever you want to call it, even if you don't take a metaphorical view on this, right, which yeah. I, I would disagree with because the majority of the ulama took a metaphorical view, for example, concerning these type of things, right? Um, uh, the point here is that it's talking about a unified conscious experience. And that's the problem of panpsychism. We have to understand that panpsychism doesn't just say that. It says that, say that this hand is conscious, right? And it has a unified conscious experience. They're going to testify against me. What panpsychism is saying is every single atom, it, it has a form of consciousness. So when they articulate that, we would say, well, how can you now make sense of a unified conscious experience, this hand having a unified conscious experience, if every single atom has a form of consciousness? How can you make sense of that? How do you kind of, you know, make sense of a unified conscious experience if you affirm that every single part of that thing also has forms of consciousness? That's one of the problems of panpsychism. So what I would say is you can't say 
that Islam adopts panpsychism from that perspective because all you can say is that when if the hand is going to speak or the stone is going to speak or the sun's going to prostrate, whatever the case may be, these are referring to whole things like the whole hand and the whole sun and the whole stone and the whole tree that actually has a unified conscious experience, if you, if you even want to call it that, right? And if you even want to move away from a metaphorical understanding, even if you adopt that view, you can't say it's a panpsychist view because the conception of panpsychism that we're talking about is that individual, each individual element, in, in each individual part, each, indi each individual fundamental building blocks, wherever you think the fundamental building blocks are, have a forms of proto-consciousness. And that's one of the conceptual problems of panpsychism is because well, you are, then you say, well, how does that now make sense of a unified conscious experience? That's the point. Okay, Zakullah for that. And just one more small uh, question. How does the, how does the, uh, you know, the aql, the intellect relate to the, the soul? So is the aql connected to the, the physical brain or is it connected to the soul or the heart, the spiritual heart? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna look. You know, these questions are debated in our classical tradition. So, the aql, the intellect, according to many of the ulama, is a function of the qalb. What is the nature of the qalb? I'm not even gonna go into that, I'm not gonna unpack that because that is a massive scholarly debate. I have my own particular position on this, but I think it won't be right to articulate that. The point is. You, not knowing this doesn't affect today's topic, right? Not knowing about what is the dynamic interplay between the aql and the qalb and the ruh and the fitrah and the nafs, all of these things. What is the dynamic interplay here? Well, there's lots of discussion amongst our beloved ulama in the classical tradition, and I ask you to explore that. But even if you take any of those positions, it doesn't undermine what we're saying today, which is there is a hard problem of consciousness based on two key questions. What is it like for an individual conscious organism to have a phenomenal conscious experience an inner conscious experience and and number two how is it how and why does a inner subjective conscious experience arise from seemingly non-conscious blind physical processes materialism can't answer those questions and uh, that's the main issue so your question is a nice question but i definitely i have to stay in my lane i'm not going to answer it uh, although I have my intuitions on the topic, but if anyone else has a complete answer on something which I think is uh, not even uh, 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 not even conclusive amongst many ulama about the dynamic interplay between these things, uh, Bismillah. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, I totally agree with you, Hamza. Uh, you know, there's difference of opinion within the tradition. I don't think it's really a hill to die on, you know, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so... Um, but Momo, we appreciate you uh, coming on and appreciate your question. Okay, for that. So, Mom, Momo, Momo, before you just leave, did you, did you understand Hamza's response though, in terms of the fact that what the what the Quran and the Sunnah talk about on the matters of the ruh, yeah, or the qalb, does not affect the discussion about consciousness and the fact that it cannot be explained under a materialistic paradigm. Yeah, Do you yeah, understand? I get, yeah, yeah, I get that. Okay, I get cool. That. Okay, uh, Zakula for that. And oh, yeah. one more thing, can you, can either like uh, one of you guys make a vid on like uh, like Creed, like either Ham brother Hamza or maybe Jake, like regarding Creed and just like maybe a, a broad mm -hmm. overview of like the three creeds. 
I I mean, it may interest you on my own channel, uh, Muslim Metaphysician. I just did a video on divine simplicity and its position in the Islamic tradition. Um, so, you know, broadly speaking, in all three schools, um, the Ashari, Maturidis, and Atharis, we all reject uh, absolute divine simplicity in the sense we believe that uh, God has real distinct uh, attributes and, that are not identical to each other. Um, but going into much more detail about the, you know, fine details and the di distinctions between the creeds, um, yeah, I don't know. If I'm honest, I don't think that that's going to be uh, the place to really do it on this podcast. Um, but maybe I'll touch on it a bit more in my uh, on my personal YouTube channel. Okay, exactly for that. So we've got Adam here and Adam, you're going to be the last guest because typically we go for about two hours. Uh, we've actually gone over the two hour mark and brother Hamza has been gracious enough to stay with us this whole time. We don't want to take up too much more of his time. Um, unfortunately we were looking to get um, some more atheists on. I don't know. Um, maybe they're watching, but they didn't want to. This come will be on, a but... discussion, nonetheless. Don't worry. Yeah. So, so Adam, um, you're going to be the last guest. Um, you've been on before on other shows, so I'm glad that you came on with your correct name this time. Yeah. No worries. So, um, I I just have a personal belief that uh, even though I am a Muslim, I do think that. Uh, that everything in the universe is conscious. Um, so I don't know if I would can. I don't. I'm not necessarily a pantheist. I don't believe everything is God, but I do think that everything in the universe is conscious, because uh, I'm also a a uh, determinist. But I I, I I'm a compatible. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. Sorry, I'm. Sorry, you said, you said what's the, what's, what's the relationship between determinism and yeah. consciousness? It, it, it usually goes the other way around, brother, if I'm going to be honest with you. So the relationship is that um, uh, because due to the contingency argument, if everything is independent, then everything, uh, then that's where I extrapolate and say that everything's necessary and conscious. Who said everything is independent? Uh, according to the contingency argument, everything. No, there is everything. something that is independent, but yeah, not no, everything. No, uh, can I? Can I? Yeah, okay. I'm saying everything is independent because, according to determinism, uh, everything could, it must be the way it is, according to determinism. Yeah, but brother, you're confusing me. Like maybe you're making a good argument, but I just don't understand it right now. So you're talking about the contingency argument. Forget about determinism for a bit. How oh, is no, the deeply related? Okay, they might be related, but you're going to have to bridge that gap for me. Maybe I'm okay, slow. So the, so the contingency argument, right? How does it say that everything is independent? It says yeah, that there is something that is independent. The premise is that anything which could not be any other way is independent and necessary. And since I believe that everything in the universe... It could not be any other way. Okay. 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 Yeah. okay. And so I believe every everything in the universe is independent... Uh, because I'm because I'm a determinist, it couldn't have been any other way. 
Therefore, well, you're not, you're, okay, okay, sorry to cut you off, but you're not talking about metaphysical necessity here or independence. So when you talk about a lot of a lot of people confuse this sometimes. So determinism, when you talk about determinism and how a certain chain of causation is necessary, we're not speaking of metaphysical necessity. We're just speaking of yeah, like sure. a logical or causal necessity. So I think there might be a bit of an equivocation between the necessity of like the necessary entity that the contingency argument takes us to. Well, and no. the necessary relation between a cause and its effect. Those are two very different things. And Adam, how does this relate to the discussion of consciousness? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, that is a more important question. Well, no, it leads to, because after this, I extrapolate to say that since everything is necessary, then everything, then uh, it's it's conscious in that it must, it's basically like an independent being, the everything, but I don't consider a God because I still believe in a, uh, God. Yeah, but did did you know? Because I I understand that that's where you're going. Gonna respond, did, yeah. did you did you understand that you're equivocating between a metaphysical necessity and this like cause effect necessity? Yeah. So the contingency argument, even when I'm not when I've when you hear it, uh, like it's just by the name, it doesn't only deal with uh, because people will say, okay, every they'll use examples of things which exist in the physical world, the universe. So they'll say, okay, the sun must be dependent because it could have been, or any other, it could have been another way. So it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily lead to a metaphysical conclusion. It it deals because what I'm saying is everything in the universe it must be independent. So that's not necessarily metaphysical. No, but the, the idea is that the contingent world is metaphysically contingent, but you're trying to say that because of determinism somehow and the necessary flow between cause and effect, that somehow that necessity is a different kind of necessity. You're trying to say that that necessity implies some metaphysical kind of necessity. Could, I think you, you're clarify what, could you clarify what do you mean by every the, the in the metaphysical world the contingency? Yeah, so, so, so if I, if I drop my phone it's gonna fall maybe you could call that some kind of an empirical necessity yeah that's it's not, not a metaphysical necessity yes so what you're trying to say is because of determinism and this chain of cause and effect because you're a determinist you have to believe that everything is necessary i don't think that follows not in the you know metaphysical sense or the the you're, you know how we use it in modal epistemology necessary not in that sense your example with the phone being dropped that's that's a physical. Uh, that's a that's a cause and effect relationship in the physical world. It's not metaphysical. Yeah, yeah, that's my point. No, that's yeah. So we're so maybe, maybe I'm lost. Maybe someone else. Maybe someone else understands what Adam is saying. I'm just lost because I think you're trying to say that the contingent world is necessary somehow because of this cause effect relationships and this determinacy. But what I'm trying yeah. to tell you is that even if you're a determinist, even if the world is pure truly deterministic that doesn't make it metaphysically necessary that that's what, what i'm trying you, to tell you do you understand that point you keep yeah you're using yeah i understand you you're using metaphysical even though i don't i don't think that you're what you're saying is metaphysical no so metaphysical necessity is something that couldn't couldn't have been otherwise so let's say let's talk about determinism there's a certain chain of causation cause leads to effect right mm. that's that's a causal necessity that could have been otherwise. It could have been that instead of X leading to Y, X could have led to someone else. Y, something else. Y no. could have led to X. There's no, a I, metaphysical possibility that it could have been otherwise. You actually, don't agree. 
No, so that's the whole idea of determinism is that there is no, there is no, there are no multiple options. There's no probability. That's, that's not, sorry, that's not so determinism. You're talking about physical determinism? X must lead to Y. There's no but other. Not, it's not a metaphysical necessity. It's because of the causal chain between X and Y that X must lead to Y. Yeah, it, it didn't, mean, have, to, it didn't it doesn't have to be that way. It, it didn't, doesn't mean that there couldn't be a possible world where Y could lead to X or there could be some different kind of causal foundation. It's just so, – so I think you're conflating two things here. Why, why could there be? Could you uh, – you're just – you're assuming that, right? Yeah, but right now – so right now I have to explain. No, so you're, no, you're I'm not assuming, assuming that, it. But you can continue, right? You're okay, assuming so, that you, so, you're, there's no – that's in indeterminism. This world could not have been any other way. Everything, ev like everything of uh, fourteen billion years ago, or ever since the first, since the Big Bang, whatever ha has happened, must have happened. There's that's the whole idea of determinism. There's yeah. no. So other I'm trying. I don't think we're yeah, gonna have the time have to, to go. Yeah, I don't think we're gonna have the time to break this down to you. But I think you're you just misunderstand what it means to be determinist because some determinists they acknowledge that. Although this chain of cause and effect, this chain of causation d d is necessary in the sense that no effect uh, uh, is, 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 is independent of the causal chain that precedes it, they mm -hmm. don't mean by that, they don't elevate that to some kind of a, they don't make that, uh, you know, modal shift, right, mm -hmm. to make it metaphysically necessary in the sense that it isn't even conceivable it couldn't be otherwise that this cause would lead to this effect. Those yeah. are two entirely different things. And Adam, Adam how does yeah. it relate to the consciousness? Well, it doesn't. Yeah, this is, this is the, the, the other point, Adam, uh, is that it's yeah. it, what you're describing, determinism, they would say it's contingently necessary. Meaning, let, Adam, let me finish, please. So what it means is that given the current state of affairs and given the Big Bang and everything that you explained, yes, it's contingently necessary now that we are in the place that we are, but it is not metaphysically necessary in the sense that it couldn't have been otherwise in other possible worlds and existences. So these are two different things that I don't think you understand or appreciate. No, I do. And I know where our contention is. Our contention is that the first cause could not have been any other way. I I say that, and you disagree. What do you I, mean? You think it couldn't have been any other way? Yeah, I say the first cause could... What was the first cause? Was the first cause God? Yes, and everything which followed, he, he had so to... So God didn't have a free will. He couldn't have been otherwise, meaning he couldn't have chosen not to create. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, he had okay, to, yeah, yeah. He had to create. So this is this is the problem. This is not for my uh, worldview. For my worldview, right? And this is the issue. I explained it on the stream on my channel yesterday when I talked about divine simplicity. Is that divine simplicity results in what you're explaining? That God doesn't have free will. Everything becomes necessary, and there's this modal collapse. If you want to take that position. Be my guest, you can, well, but it's not. Let me finish. Let me finish. But it is not the traditional Islamic position, and it's considered heretical. So, to to claim that God doesn't have free will when the Quran and the Sunnah actually clearly state that He does have free will is problematic. Okay, so you're you're really at, you're posing questions to me. So let me actually. Well, I, I didn't ask a question. I made statements. No, you you said from okay. So let me explain my belief because 
that so we've gotten to this point so far. I think that this so the first cause, which God, I don't think it's God. I think so the first cause is not God. It, I'm talking about the first physical cause that God created, which led to all of the other causes, the physical causes in the universe, which led up to this point. I think that could not have been any other way. And it was God's free will who chose that the before he created it. But it, it, you're talking about the... Did the, he have a choice to create it or yeah, not? You're talking about a dilemma. You're talking about the determinism and free will dilemma. I'm with, saying with respect to God, did he have a choice to create this world or not? The first thing... Yes, I think, I think metaphysical else. beings have free will. Yes. Okay. So, so Adam, 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 just going back to what Abdurrahman said. I actually have an yeah, Sorry. Abdurrahman said you're conflating metaphysical uh, determinism with causal determinism, and you're doing, and this is exactly what he meant, which is you can talk about something being contingently caused in a chain of events where X causes Y, Y causes Z, and so on. Yeah. But what uh, what this doesn't necessitate is that x would cause y it could be the case that the system that's set up could be that x causes z and z causes y and then that becomes contingently uh deterministic just in the, quran, the difference between no, the two no, god actually had to to create us in the quran it says that Adam, i'm not talking about the quran i'm talking about what is meant when we when Abdurrahman no, Jake was talking Jake Adam, I know. you just said you just said that god has free will let's not go back there you just said that god could no you're chosen not to create time. okay but but adam i think the problem here we're going too off track from the topic in order for you to 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 show us what you're trying to say about everything being conscious you have to take us through these you know huge uh, considerations that we're not going to agree on we're going to have to go through the foundations even, quran, even the quran says everything's conscious the what do you mean my, my, my quran it's mine as well it doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like a muslim it doesn't sound like a muslim but no, anyway 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 we're not talking about opinion, the quran and we're not talking really if you think okay. i'm a muslim or not okay that's no, 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 i'm just saying that doesn't sound we will accept I, I, that you are Muslim. Yeah, so don't worry. We're not going to say that. Yeah, I'm not saying you're not. Say. I'm, I'm not saying you're not a Muslim, Adam. I'm just saying that doesn't sound like a very Muslim thing to say. So I'm not saying you're not a Muslim. But anyway, the 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 point is that the topic of this stream is unrelated to the Quran. And right now, if we're going to have to go through contingency it's arguments, really and, and if we're going to have to go through contingency arguments and determinism and take into consideration your metaphysical commitments versus our metaphysical commitments and walk you through epistemology and modal logic in order to <laughs> for you to yeah, drive us to your... You're throwing out these terms as if, I mean... Yeah, no, uh, to be honest, they're very, they're fairly, they're very well-known terms that you yeah, should know if you're trying to make this kind of an argument. I mean, this is not, I'm not trying to make up it's any private, big terms or anything. Instead of just throwing out these terms. If, if, if you're talking about, Adam, if you're talking about necessity and contingency and you're making these bold claims about everything having consciousness on that basis, the I take it that you should, one second, you should know what modal logic is. I mean, I, I think, but anyway, anyway. That's not the point. The point is that right now we're going to have to go through so much baggage in order for you to take us to this conclusion. So is there another route where we can through which we can address this the topic of this stream from your perspective without going through all that? Yeah. Okay, fine. Fine. So Adam, yeah. how, do, how do you explain? How do you explain, yeah. how do you explain consciousness? Do you think it's a okay, hard problem? I'll use the I'll use the I'll use Islamic uh 
response instead of this the metaphysical arguments. We can get into that some other stream if you guys want to. Okay, for, but just based off the Quran, it you should believe based off the Quran that everything has, is conscious. The the what's the Kaaba is conscious according. I'm and obviously I'm, I don't have the phrase the verse. Adam, 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 Adam you're, mis you're misunderstanding the question. The question isn't is everything, everything conscious. No, you're, you're interrupting. We, we don't we don't we didn't ask that question. I asked the question: Is there a hard problem of consciousness? That's the question I asked. Is there a hard problem of consciousness? Yeah, is, it, is there a hard problem trying to predicate consciousness within a materialistic worldview? Yeah, Adam, yes. do you know what the hard problem of consciousness is? Yeah, it is. It's trying to explain consciousness uh, on physicalism. And I, I, I think that consciousness arises in a metaphysical reality. It's a metaphysical reality. That's yeah, then right. then okay. we're in agreement then. So, so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so I, I, thought this, I thought we were... I thought we were uh, Discussing whether everything's conscious or not. No, that's no, just no, no, no. one that's view. There is a certain view in philosophy of mind, and they, uh, so, some philosophers come up with these these theories that are pan, pan you know, pan, uh, about panpsychism, pan that everything is conscious or everything has some kind of a proto-consciousness to it. Uh, that's that's one theory, but then it's not necessarily mutually exclusive with a, a theistic worldview. We're not saying that Islam is explicitly committed to this. Maybe some Muslims might think otherwise, but this I think that's besides, that's besides the point. The, the point is, is there a hard problem of consciousness on materialism and can they deal with it? We think they can't. You kind of seem to be agreeing with us. So I, I don't think there's a problem unless you just want to talk about panpsychism from an Islamic perspective, but I think we've already touched upon that. Oh yeah, I heard you. That's why I heard you guys talking to the guest about the. Uh, I might have misunderstood. So, why. so Adam, do you understand why uh, even atheist philosophers uh, agree with panpsychism? Why why they approach approach it that way? Uh, why some atheist philosophers are panpsychists? I think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are different reasons for holding the belief. Probably to get around to not believe in God. That's one. To explain. okay complexity without believing in a, a separate conscious being well one of the key ways one of the key reasons uh why uh they propose panpsychism is because they 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 say that because there's an in principle problem trying to bridge the gap between materialism and consciousness they will take consciousness as a brute fact something we just have to accept and that as a result, we will accept it in all material objects. Yeah, that's not, yeah, that's not scientific at all. Okay. Well, that's what panpsychism is. That's what they believe. Adam, unfortunately, we've been going on here for about two and a half hours. We're going to have to cut you short. Um, maybe we will have a future stream on determinism and sort of related to the question that you're asked. And you can join in at that point and, and we can have a discussion about that then. But yeah, no uh, we're we're, go we're gonna have to end the stream now, unfortunately. Okay, Zakralakh. Thanks, Adam. Jake, uh, you might want to mention that Hamza had unfortunately had to go. Yeah, 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 Hamza. Unfortunately, he was having a little bit of connection issues early on, which I think people were able to see. Um, but then um, he unfortunately had to go. So uh, we do appreciate Brother Hamza coming on. He was, like I said, gracious enough to stay for over two hours, um, mashallah. And um, 
really enjoyed and appreciate him coming on. I don't know if you guys have any final thoughts on uh, the discussion that we we've been having today uh, before we wrap it up. Uh, no, I think uh, I think we've uh, pretty much uh, spoken about this topic and mm-hmm. addressed a lot of the issues. I think um, uh, there's there's a lot more, even more that we can probably discuss on this topic, and you know, there's a lot more discussions to break down. I think the issue is is that what people try to do when they talk about consciousness is they try to say, oh, it's the brain, yeah, oh. We just don't have enough information yet. We can answer it once we get more science. Uh, or, you know, they all try to say, oh, you know, it can be worked out if we know which neuron causes what type of sensation or feeling in the brain or experience. So they give these various explanations. And I think what you find is that every time they give an explanation, so the issue of the science, well, it's not a, it's not the fact that we don't know enough of the science. It's the fact that it's an in-principle problem that science cannot address. So that's the first thing, you know, just simply saying, well, it's the brain does not actually then explain to us how these experiences come about. And neither does it simply identify neurons and which neurons produces what type of, uh, you know, conscious uh, awareness. So none of these things can really explain it. And I think uh, Hamza, I think really wanted to talk about elimination is it elimin- mm-hmm. <laughs> elimination theory? Where basically they deny consciousness. Elim- eliminative materialism. Eliminative materialism. So where they yeah. just deny consciousness. And, and some, some atheists, some, some philosophers of, of science end up, physicalists, end up going down the route to say, well, there is no consciousness as yeah. a result, which seems ridiculous. Yeah, which, I mean, Rosenberg in the book I was reading earlier, that's what he, li- he literally says, uh, because that's eventually what it leads to. But uh, I do want to just make one last comment on identity theory because, fortunately, we didn't get too many atheists on. Uh, the two main theories that I hear when I speak to atheists are identity theory and emergentism. Um, Brother Hamza touched on uh, emergentism a little bit. But identity theory basically says that the, the brain states and the mental states are identical to one another so that there's no difference between the two. I just want to point out that the issue with this is is within the name of the theory itself, identity. So um, we talked about identity in the past with things like the Trinity. And the issue is is that uh, as per Leibniz's law in classical identity, that if two things are identical, that whatever's true of one also has to be true of the other and vice versa. And unfortunately, when it comes to the brain states and the mental states, there are things that I can say that are true of my mental states that are not true of my brain states. For example, I can have an experience of color. For example, I can see this red hat, but everyone knows no one is obviously going to make the claim that my brain state, which is supposedly identical to that, is actually uh, colorful and is actually red or whatever. Same way, likewise, I can make comments about, uh, for example, typically mental states are understood as not spatio-temporal. They're not located in space, um, whereas a brain state obviously is. So the issue with identity theory is that it says that the brain states and the mental states are identical to one another. But the problem is that we can say things that are true of one that are not true of the other. Uh, I did just want to touch on that very briefly before we ended it because of the fact that 
uh, we didn't get any atheists on to really mention that, and I didn't want that to uh, pass us by. But, Abdul, I don't know if you have anything you'd like to add before we end the stream. Uh, just very quickly, I, I I don't think we've touched enough on the argument from reason, so I just think we should have a different stream for that because it's uh, – it's um it's a very very important one and i think it's a very important discussion it's about grounding rationality on naturalism um i think we've mentioned it but we haven't really uh, gone through much of the details but i think this is a more direct route to uh to god as in this is an argument in it's both against naturalism and in favor of theism. I think consciousness can be um, the the argument from consciousness can be formulated in that way too. Uh, probably not as straightforwardly as the argument from reason, but uh, but yeah, I think we we should probably do a different stream on that and uh, and also on determinism. But but yeah, I think that's it for me. Yep, inshallah. Yeah, so maybe next time we will do a stream building on this discussion in which we will talk about uh, arguments from reason um, and things like that, because it is related to consciousness, kind of offshoot from that. But once again, I appreciate Brother Hamza for coming on. I appreciate appreciate everybody uh, watching. Do uh, consider liking this video, subscribing to the channel, and sharing on it, um, on your social media, especially no matter how big or small your platforms are. We really do appreciate it. And once again, guys, thanks for watching. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.